Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, good morning. I declare open this third public hearing of the Joint Select Committee on Australia's Family Law System. Uh, this is a public hearing and a Hansard transcript of the proceedings is being made and the hearing is also streaming live via the web, which can be found at www.aph.gov.au. I remind all witnesses that in giving evidence to the committee, they are protected by parliamentary privilege. It is unlawful for anyone to threaten or disadvantage a witness on account of evidence given to a committee, and such action may be treated by the Senate as a contempt. It is also contempt to give false or misleading evidence to a committee. If a witness objects to answering a question, the witness should state the ground upon which the objection is taken, and the committee will determine whether it will insist on an answer, having regard to the ground which is claimed. If the committee determines to insist on an answer, a witness may request that the answer be given in camera. Such a request may, of course, be made at any other time. The committee is due to report on the 7th of October 2020, where a witness takes a question on notice at this hearing, answers should be provided by the 27th of March 2020. And can I remind people in the hearing room to ensure that their mobile phones are either turned off or switched to silence. Can I now welcome Mr Jeff Wilson via teleconference. Uh, can you hear Mr Wilson? Yes, I can. Thank you. Uh, thank you. It's Kevin Andrews speaking. I'm joined by the Deputy Chair, Senator Hanson, Senator O'Sullivan, Mr Perrett, and on via teleconference, Ms Stegall and Senator Waters. To assist Hansard, could you uh, please state your full name and the capacity in which you appear today? Uh, my full name is Geoffrey John Wilson, um, and I appear as a um, legal practitioner who has an interest in relation to the issue of prenuptial agreements. Uh, thank you, Mr Wilson. You've lodged submission number 111 with the committee. Are there any amendments or additions you'd like to make to that? No. Thank you. And uh, information on parliamentary privilege and the protection of witnesses and giving evidence to parliamentary committees has been provided to you as part of your invitation to appear. Uh, Mr Wilson, we have your um, written submission to the committee. Um, you can take it that the members of the committee have read uh, that submission, but can I invite you to make some opening statements? Yes, thank you, Mr Andrew. Um, thank you for the opportunity to speak to the written submissions I've provided to you on behalf of the other 10 senior family lawyers from around Australia named in the paper who regularly prepare financial agreements, particularly prenuptial agreements. Our paper is solely directed to item J of the terms of reference, namely the potential usage of prenuptial agreements and their enforceability to minimise future property disputes. As you will have read, we advocate strongly for the continued use of financial agreements, including prenuptial agreements as currently provided under parts 8A and 8AB of the Family Law Act in its current form with some minor suggested amendments. Both government and the court recognise parties to a relationship ought to have private autonomy and responsibility as adults to reach their own agreements about financial matters without intervention by the court when the agreement complies with the requirements of the legislation and there are no grounds to vitiate the contract between the parties. This is a fundamental pillar of our family law system and I can vouch from experience it is one that is envied internationally. It's important to recognise statistically 93 to 95% of relationships that break down are settled without resort to court with or without assistance of family lawyers. 
of the 5% that proceed to court, only 5% of that cohort ultimately go to trial. Therefore, in the main, there ought to be emphasis upon and continued availability of formal agreements to be entered, whether at the front end, during or the back end of the relationship. This is important for a properly functioning family law system. Fundamental to that is that court process is and should remain a last resort. In the main, and contrary to some suggestion, as a profession, we endeavour to keep our clients out of the court system. Regrettably, the 5% of the 5% require a judge as a third-party adjudicator to resolve their dispute, which is often an intractable dispute that cannot be resolved through mediation or other form of dispute resolution. The reality is the availability of financial agreements reduces the burden and impost on the government and the court system. No doubt there are concerns about the misuse of agreements and the fact many lawyers self-select out of preparing agreements. We say there are sufficient safeguards in the current legislation, including the need for independent Australian legal representation and advice, particularly deploying best practice around these agreements and the remedies available at common law in equity and under the legislation to challenge those agreements. The agreements are enforced by the courts. There's ample anecdotal evidence in reported decisions of the court where the court has recognised the agreement, held it to be binding and enforced the agreement. My experience in practice is that there is a demand for such agreements from the public who bring their own wide range of disparate circumstances and differing life experiences at various stages of their life to the table. In my experience, no two agreements are the same and nor should they be. Given the ramifications for entering agreements, that is to contract out a future property settlement and spousal maintenance rights, these agreements ought not be lightly entertained. The process when properly undertaken is complex and commands a level of skill and expertise. I'd recommend that the current legislation not be watered down. I have summarised the process in the flowchart in Schedule 4 paper. I now welcome your questions. So, Mr Wilson, just for the record, could you just step us through, um, in a sense, that flowchart, step us through what would you do if a client comes to you and is interested in a financial agreement? I'm interested, I suppose, in what are the uh, safety features here for the client particularly in terms of the current legislation and whether that legislation could potentially be strengthened to make agreements more attractive? Uh, yes, Mr Andrews. Um, I think the, the best part of that flowchart is the centre part that's, that's shaded. Um, when we originally or initially receive, a, uh, receive contact from a client, um, at that point in time, we provide them with some background information in relation to the agreements and, so that they have an understanding from the outset as to what the legislative requirements are and uh, direct them to the information we'll need from them to prepare the agreement. Um, we meet with the client and spend, uh, on average, probably an hour to an hour and a half, walking them through the agreements, um, again, going over what the requirements are, um, understanding what their requirements are. And in particular, um, it's at this point, and this, this raises the, the concern about where we have vulnerable clients who and there may be um, uh, some um, 
differences of um, position um, where, and particularly we do screening um, where we think that um, clients are vulnerable as a result of the uh, imbalance in power and the relationship that there's domestic violence and the like. We need to address that. But we walk them through, get a clear understanding of what's required. Um, we then engage them beyond that um, as clients and start the process of um, gathering information through a disclosure process to be able to prepare the document. Um, if, if it's the case that um, the client presents to us with an agreement that's been prepared by uh, the lawyers representing their spouse, um, then we'll consider the document carefully with the client and ensure that um, the, agree the agreement is fair and reasonable to the client. If um, it is unreasonable, it's at that point in time, obviously, that we have to um, flag with them our concerns as to it being unreasonable and try and get a measure on um, whether the client fully comprehends um, what the agreement entails and the effect of the agreement on their rights and whether, in fact, um, they fully comprehend and are not being pressured into the agreement as such, and we give them advice about that. If we are preparing the document, then we will draft the document. Um, uh, we work with the client um, over a period of typically you know, um, seven to ten days, going back and forth, getting the agreement in order and making sure the client fully appreciates and understands what the agreement provides. Um, once the, the client is happy with the agreement, at that juncture um, we then forward the agreement back to um, their spouse or the solicitor representing the spouse. If it's the case that we are walking our client through an agreement prepared by the other side, um, any uh, amendments that are required we take up and negotiate with the other solicitor. So it's a process at that point in time of negotiating the terms of the agreement until, and also requiring any outstanding disclosure that we think is necessary to ensure that um, our client is on a level playing field with uh, their spouse uh, so that we can provide the appropriate advice to the client. Once the agreement has been um, completed to the point where both parties are happy with its terms, it's at that point in time that we can move towards execution and uh, ordinarily uh, we would uh, provide formal legal advice to the client to meet the requirements of the legislation, advising them about the effect of the agreement and the advantages and disadvantages. Uh, we normally take them through a process of, of analysing uh, what their potential property settlement entitlements could be at various stages of their relationship, taking into account uh, different variables. For instance, if we're dealing with a, a young couple um, who are out to marry um, and be married for the first time and the prospect of having children, then we need to um, address those issues with the parties and what impact it could have uh, upon them if... Uh, they didn't have an agreement as what their property settlement entitlements might look like. Um, it's on that basis that we project 
potential uh, property settlement outcomes so that the client can then understand whether in fact the agreement is to their advantage or disadvantage, at least from a legal perspective going forward. So we document that advice, we get the client to acknowledge that advice and once that's all been done we're ready to execute the agreement with the um, other party. Best practice is normally that we do that where possible um, around a table together. Um, it gives everyone the opportunity then to address whether in fact the requirements under Section 90G have been attended to in terms of ensuring the agreement is binding. So just in relation to the latter part of your uh, remarks in terms of property disputes, the, the next witness to this inquiry today, Professor Parkinson, in his submission states this, and I quote, one reason for the disproportionately high cost of property disputes is that the law is so vague and unclear, which invites litigation and makes the resolution of disputes unnecessarily expensive. Australia has the most discretionary system of property division that I know anywhere in the world." Unquote. Do you agree with that assessment? Uh, to an extent I do. Um, having a dis judges having a discretion makes it very difficult to predict outcomes. Particularly with the recent case law, it's been where the court says that they adopt what is uh, deemed a holistic approach. It makes it very difficult as a practitioner to be able to um, advise our clients of what uh, the likely outcome would be, other than to speak in say ranges of 10% on a good day and a bad day. Yes. Just two more questions from me. Um, one is. Um, in, in your experience, and I know this is anecdotal, but it would be of interest, what, what are the reasons why people are reluctant to enter into a financial agreement? Um, there, there are some people who just don't like the concept because um, they see it as unromantic. It's, it's a breach of the trust of their relationship such. Um, I think, and, and anecdotally, I think also, um, whilst I think the legislation uh, is necessary and the steps that we have to jump through to ensure that the agreement uh, is binding and they provide the necessary safeguards, in my view, uh, to ensuring that a client uh, is adequately protected. Um, it is not a cheap process. Um, there are some, uh, I think, expectations that these agreements can be prepared relatively cheaply and simply and akin to um, the old will kits that you get from a newsagent. But unfortunately, um, they are not a straightforward um, and simple document because um, the need to ensure that uh, the safeguards that I speak about um, are upheld. That's that's really, I think, the, the cost um, often is an issue um, that uh, turns um, the client away. Um, but the other reason is that um, it just doesn't suit the client because they don't see it as... Um, um, necessarily reflective of their relationship with their client. I think it's a breach of the trust that they have and the yes. love for their, 
And that, that leads me to my last question to you, Mr Wilson, and that is, I know there's a, obviously a range here, but can you give us a ballpark figure of what uh, an agreement would cost in the sort of normal, straightforward case that involves, uh, you know, the, the house or two houses and the mortgage and um, whatever for the normal, a bit of super, the normal sort of situation. I'm talking about farms and family trusts and discretionary arrangements like that, just the normal run-of-the-mill, if there is such a thing, um, uh, marriage. I would have thought between for a straightforward agreement, um, it would cost between five to $7,000. Where you start to have complexity, that's where it increases. And you have entities, trusts and the like, then um, because of the need for further disclosure and more complicated drafting, a lot uh, less than a day for a QC in the family court. Ah, uh, dear. Yes. Yes. Senator Hanson. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr Wilson. It's Pauline Hanson. Um, are prenup agreements upheld and recognised by the courts if a couple chooses to have one drawn up prior to marriage? Yes, they are, provided they comply with the legislation. You've um, made a statement here that we have um, also suggested that the 2015 Family Law Amendment, Financial Agreements and Other Measures Bill should be restored and amended to adopt, to adopted the recommendations of the Family Law Section of the Law Council of Australia. Can you further expand on that, please? Yes, those, those amendments or the bill that was, was um, before Parliament, before Parliament rose um, in 2016, I think it was, or 17, um, the amendments that were contained within the bill um, were generally accepted as um, beneficial in terms of ensuring that um, the agreements would be uh, more would be better upheld by the courts. The the amendments would ensure that. Um, uh, some of the problems that had been encountered in practice or some of the uncertainties were removed. So, um, for instance, how the court deals with the legal certificate, um, that was considered a very good amendment um, that would assist both client and practitioners going forward. Um, and, and it is certainly um, considered by myself and the other practitioners that that bill ought to be reintroduced and um, proceeded with. In um, consideration of a lot of people that actually for, may get married for the second, even possibly the third time, and over that period of time have accumulated property prior to, to their marriage, would you recommend it as being mandatory that if these people do take out prenup agreements because it's been known that they've lost their properties to their former partner who came to the marriage with absolutely nothing? Uh, Senator, I wouldn't say mandatory, but I'd certainly encourage um, clients who are in that circumstance because not only do they come to the relationship um, with their own wealth in that regard that ought to be protected, but they um, generally also have children who have an interest in that property and the agreements uh, in that regard are a good means of protecting the interests of the children as well as um, the client in respect of that wealth they've brought to the relationship. If a person is actually 
marries and prior to their marriage, they were involved in a, a trust with their brother, which was taken out 10 years prior to the marriage. And upon separation and divorce of that couple, now there is a, um, there is a claim over that trust. Um, can that, is that feasible? I mean, say he's, um, the brother now has been um, taken to the courts over the trust and is fighting that. Um, so can the prior um, trust, family trust, be family challenged? Trust preceded by preceded, 10 years. That's yeah. right. Can that family trust be challenged by the, by the for, former wife, the ex-wife of the brother? The party's interest in the trust can be taken into account as to whether the court determines it to be property that should be included in the pool largely depends upon a number of factors, including whether the party to the relationship has control over the trust. If, um, as a result of the brother also having an interest, the party to the relationship doesn't have absolute control, um, then it may not be considered uh, property or that person's interest may be considered a resource. But um, at the end of the day, it really depends upon... Uh, the level of control of that trust and also the origin of the property in the trust. Um, so it may well be that the court determines, um, subject to whatever the factual uh, information about that trust is, that um, despite a claim being made against the trust that it would not... Yep. Just a last question. Most cases after separation or going through it uh, in the court systems over property settlement, most cases end up with about 35% to each person and then realistically they're fighting over the other 30%. Do you believe that there should be a system where automatically prior to it they are given 35% each and then come to some agreement about the other 30% rather than dragging out through the court system with... Um, Legals making a for absolute fortune out of it over other people's misery fighting over properties. Um, Senator, um, and also going back to um, Mr Andrews' uh, question of me in relation to what Professor Parkinson uh, has suggested, um, I think the system that we have, which assesses the contributions that the parties have made and, and makes some adjustments for disparity in position um, is a fair system as such. I think you don't want to be too prescriptive in the sense of people have different circumstances depending on the length of their relationship. For instance, if a party comes to the relationship with a significant amount of wealth and the other par party doesn't, um, then and, and their relationship only endures for a short period of time, um, Having a rule that, that starts at 35% may not be fair, particularly to the person who introduces the, the wealth, particularly if that is all that is left at the end of their relationship. There are a number of different circumstances, significant inheritances that may be received, for instance. So uh, if, if uh, you venture into having a fixed rule, there will always need to be some exceptions to that rule to cater for the differences in people's own circumstances um, and yeah. currently we're, 
Albeit, as I, I indicated before, it is difficult for a practitioner to give advice to a client with absolute certainty as to what the court would do because of the discretion, at least where you have a system that assesses all of the contributions that the parties make, um, you at least give uh, everybody an opportunity to to argue for uh, outside of the, the range um, that we're talking about there. I think everyone would like to see fairness. At the end of the day, it really is at the discretion of the judge how he just determines how he wants to hand down his, his decision with regards to property. And uh, so anyway, thank you very much, Mr Wilson. Mr Perrett. Thank you, uh, Senator. Uh, thank you, Mr Wilson. Um, I, I was just wondering up front, and I, I, th I think your submission was written by a group, but I just wondered if Hopgood and Gannon, what would be the majority of your clients? Would they be people with, with uh, coming into the relationship with the majority of the, of the um, resources of the relationship? Or do you, do, you do sort of 50-50? Probably 50-50. I, uh, I, do, I do act for um, wealthy families where you get that situation, but I also yep. do act for, for um, clients who, as Senator Hanson was talking about, are coming into second and, and subsequent yep. relationships where each have their own wealth, um, okay. which is comparable, and they seek to protect that. Um, yeah, so it's probably... You've got a mix, yeah. So the um, just taking it to the AR... ALRC, they made no specific recommendations on financial agreements, but they did discuss them on page 236 and stated yep. that the primary attention of reform efforts should be on providing certainty and clarity to Part 8 of the Act through recommendations 11 through 17. Do you have a position on the ALRC's view? Um, uh, can I take that on notice? Because sure, I don't yeah. have those paragraphs in front of me, but yeah. I'd be happy to respond to those. Thank you. And what? And are you, are you familiar with the case Thorne and Kennedy? Very much, yes, and I <laughs> refer to it in my paper as well. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I've got to say I haven't read all 170 pages of, of, <laughs> of it. I'm do, I do apologise. Um, but what, what safeguards are currently in place for BFAs where there is a power imbalance between the parties? And are you proposing any changes to those safeguards? Um, uh, working with the last question, no. Um, in terms of what safeguards are present, firstly, um, there's a requirement of independent legal advice. Yeah. Um, and I acknowledge that uh, that can be... Um, a variable depending upon the quality of that advice. Um, the other why, that's why I've asked that first question about what a, a, you know is are you being one of your clients? You know, do you do Chinese walls that sort of thing, or do you no. uh, you know getting ma making sure that it's strong independent legal advice would seem to be the the key part of any decent binding financial agreement. Absolutely. That, that, that is important, and that was explored at length, as I understand it, um, when the amendments or the, the amendments were made to the legislation back in 2000, introducing the agreements. Um, unlike other jurisdictions where legal advice um, isn't mandatory, I think it's important, uh, particularly in circumstances where you're ultimately ousting uh, the court's jurisdiction over property settlement and maintenance that you do have independent legal advice with certificates. The, the other safeguard, um, standards is the fact that the grounds for challenging an agreement, 
including all of the uh, ordinary remedies that you have for challenging contracts at law are available to the parties. And I appreciate that of itself may not seem satisfactory because um, the parties are being put to the expense of having to um, bring such an application on. But those remedies are available and the court has acknowledged where you have that imbalance, it may give rise to claims of um, unconscionable conduct, um, duress, undue influence. Um, in terms of whether uh, further rec further um, amendments are required, and I've referred to it in the paper, um, one thing that fell from the High Court in Thorne and Kennedy was um, presently um, there is no ground of lawful act duress which could pick up uh, these sort of power imbalances and I think the court was very interested in um, dealing with that matter but the case didn't lend itself to it. That may be something worth looking at and also in respect of um, uh, whether there are remedies around uh, the issue of co coercive control and the likes particularly where you have that Im imbalance but apart from that uh, the system uh, has the inbuilt safeguards as best as possible. And in terms of, um, do do you recommend a you know like annual review, five year review? You know, in terms of if you if you do a binding financial agreement when you're 20, you know, I assume by the time you're 60 or you know in five years things can change so much in a relationship. Um, do you give advice to your clients if you if you do prepare a binding financial agreement for them? Definitely, and uh, one of the provisions in the agreement is, and most most of my clients do take this up. In fact, I'd say ninety nine percent of them do that. There is a review provision in the agreement, whether it be every five years, every seven years, that the parties review the agreement and decide whether they want to make changes or. Uh, whether they'll continue with the agreement. Um, the other way of dealing with it, particularly if you have a young couple, um, best practice uh, in an ideal world would be to have a sunset provision in the agreement so that it comes to an end after a certain period of time um, because of um, the reality that their circumstances will be completely different. The other the only other way, and we often do this when we draft the agreements, is to ensure that um, there's adequate provision to deal with um, changes in circumstances and the like um, in terms of what fair and reasonable provisions are made. I think that Thorne and Kennedy, was that like a, 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 you know, a wife coming from Russia or something like that? That, that sort of second marriage where someone came without an awareness of the legal, the Australian legal system and the like. Would, would, do you get many of those sorts of uh, clients? No, I don't, but I'm aware of um, agreements being entered where you do have, and I'll put in inverted commas, the male brides and, yeah, and the like. I, I know what you mean. But, um, but again, um, when confronted with that situation, you would need to screen um, the client properly. You'd need to have translators, interpreters involved okay. um, to ensure that they do fully understand and they're not disadvantaged. Okay. All right. Thank you, Mr. Wilson. Senator O'Sullivan. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Mr. Wilson. Uh, 
I wasn't surprised at your response to Mr Andrew's question with regards to the reasons why people don't uh, enter into these uh, without having the background in this space myself. I think in intuitively probably would have come to the same conclusion. Not very um, romantic. <laughs> not very romantic, yeah, it's probably the... the first, but I'm wondering, in your experience, are there other jurisdictions around the world that that isn't the case? And if there is, do they operate... Do those countries operate under a di different legislative framework? Yes, I do. Um, and typically, with the continental Europeans, it is often a cultural thing where they have a property regime in place. So whether the property, the property gets uh, categorised as separate property um, or um, it becomes community property and... Um, the parties can enter into an agreement that opts in or out of the different type of regime. Um, that's a, a totally different sort of scenario to, to our types of prenuptial agreements. OK, that's all. Thanks. So just on that, Mr Wilson, um, are, are there, again, in your experience, are there, whilst accepting your previous statement that uh, no two are exactly the same, but are there categories that, you know, a number fall into sort of roughly the same sort of arrangement? Uh, you'll find in these types of agreements um, there is a dichotomy of the types of property, how the, the parties treat that property. So where the parties want to quarantine um, certain property, it will be designated as separate property, which the other party doesn't make any claim. Um, there, there then is what I refer to as relationship property, so they'll categorise certain property as joint property to be divided in a certain agreed fashion between them. And then I have a third category, which is the additional property, which typically... Um, the moneyed spouse would provide to the non-moneyed spouse to ensure the agreement is a fair and reasonable agreement. Um, so you have that broad categorisation. Um, there are what we call the, the, the terrible agreements, which essentially are agreements which are one-sided that essentially says what's yours is yours, what's mine is mine, and there's no other provision. I think those agreements are fraught and um, I struggle um, uh, where parties are uh, endeavouring to enter those type of agreements. You need to be um, quite robust with your client if they are disadvantaged to ensure that they fully understand and it's against their interests and you need to explore with them the reasons why they would enter into that type of agreement mm. um, because at the end of the day uh, it, it certainly doesn't uh, take account of what level of contributions and and um, the financial disparity between the parties would be going forward. So um, that, that is a broad categorisation of the types of agreements that you would see out in the marketplace. Yes. So, uh, Mr Perrick? I, I was just going to add to it, like it wasn't my area of law, but do, doing wills where, where someone really hated one of their children and 
you know, so you'd say, well, that might be so, but you still need to provide for them. So it seems to be that area of law repeated in um, family law, is it, Mr Wilson, where you, you must be reasonable. I mean, it is all based on... It's, it's bringing contract into love, but it's, it seems to work reasonably well at the moment, especially since uh, Thorne and Kennedy's catch-all, I guess. I think that's right, Mr Perrett. Um, and there is an, anal an analogy between wills and these types of agreements. Um, they're not only um, beneficial in the family law space, but they, they are a good estate planning tool as such. Mm. Um, for some people, and I think the best analogy in, in dealing with the concern that they are unromantic is that it represents an insurance policy for the parties um, with a view to preventing having to litigate um, in the event that their relationship breaks down. So uh, for most people, um, subject to the review clauses that we put in those agreements, they like to enter into the agreement, give themselves peace of mind and put the agreement away in the hope that they never have to actually resort to the agreement at the end of the day, but it's there if, if they find themselves in the unfortunate position that the relationship doesn't work out for whatever reason and they don't have to be concerned about um, having to litigate over the matter. A $7,000 investment in love, is that what you're saying, Mr Wilson? Uh, that's one way of putting it, yes. Uh, as uh, Ms Stegall or Senator Waters online and have any questions? Uh, not for this witness, thanks, Chair. Thank you. I, I had a question, but someone else asked it. Thank you. Uh, Mr Wilson, can I thank you for your submission and thank you also for uh, the time this morning to discuss it. I know you've got a court appearance you have to go to, so thank you very much for making time for us. Thank you, Mr Andrew. It's been a pleasure. And I'll um, get my response back to those matters that I've put on notice. We appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good morning. Senator Hanson, Senator O'Sullivan and Mr Perrett here in person and Senator Waters and maybe Ms Stegall, not at the moment, possibly in the future, um, by right. teleconference. Uh, can I thank you for your submission and also for uh, appearing uh, today? Could I ask you for the Hansard record to state your name? Yes, it's Patrick Newport Parkinson and I'm Dean of Law at the University of Queensland. And Professor Parkinson, you've lodged submission number 93. Would you like to make any amendments or additions to that submission? Uh, no amendments or additions to that, but if I can make a brief opening statement, that would be good. In a moment, yes. And I just want to inform you that information on parliamentary privilege um, has been provided to you as part of your invitation to occur. We have your uh, written submission, and you can take it that the committee has read it, but can I invite you to make some opening remarks? Well, thank you very much, and thank you for the opportunity to participate in this important inquiry. Uh, I have written a lengthy submission and made various recommendations that I hope you will consider carefully in your deliberations. Um, by way of introduction, I just want to make a couple of points. First of all, there's no shortage of good ideas to improve the family law system. Experts have been offering suggestions or producing evidence-based recommendations for years and years. The reports have frankly been piling up. The problem is that these reports typically go into a black hole. They may be cherry-picked so that the government of the day can be seen to have responded to the report, but 
typically what happens is that minor recommendations are picked up and the reforms are, are therefore tangential. They don't necessarily make much of a difference to the system. One of the most recent of these reforms for which I was responsible, together with Brian Knox, uh, senior counsel in Sydney, was the idea of passing an inquisitorial tribunal to decide many children's cases intended for litigants who cannot afford legal representation. This was a big and bold new I I idea. The idea was the tribunal would use questionnaires rather than affidavits to get quickly to the issue. The tribunal would ask the questions that they needed to, to know. A lawyer chairperson would triage the case in the early stages, somebody with decades of experience in family law. If the case couldn't be resolved, an independent children's lawyer would be appointed and the case would be heard by a three-member panel in a hearing scheduled for no more than two hours. The panel would consist of the lawyer and two other people with expertise in family issues, perhaps a child psychologist or a psychiatrist with a, or an expert on drug and alcohol issues, whatever was appropriate to the matter. And the idea was that an expert panel would be able to make sensible decisions about a lot of cases in a couple of hours of hearing rather than two to three days as happens in the courts. This was a perfect model for self-representative litigants. Now, the government chose to call these parenting management hearings. I thought the name was dreadful, but uh, it was not my, not my name. But the concept was good, and the bill uh, was introduced. Nearly $30 million was allocated in the budget, but uh, the pilot program did not go ahead because it couldn't get through Parliament. None of the reasons given to oppose it were good ones. I think there was a lot of political game playing by various people. This is an example of one of many of ideas which have been put forward and should have been tried. So I'd respectfully say the committee shouldn't reinvent the wheel. The second point is that some reforms have, have worked, but they've been allowed to atrophy either for lack of funding or support. The less adversarial trial was um, uh, trialed in the mid-2000s. It was a very significant su success. That hasn't been continued. Um, the most successful reform in the history of family law in Australia was the introduction of the family relationship centres. We saw a 32% reduction in children's cases within the five years following the creation of those centres and the requirement to try mediation before filing a case. Um, but the family relationship centres have been allowed to atrophy. The funding has not kept pace. The, there's been a massive increase in population since 2004 when the um, numbers were planned. And this is a reform which should um, should be reinvigorated. Um, the third point is that the government is partly to blame for the current problems. And I'm not being political here, let me make that clear. I'm not blaming this government more than the Labour government. What I am saying is this, that politicians do have a tendency, if I may say so, to blame the judges or blame the family lawyers for the problems in the system. It's a constant rhetoric. But governments have also their own culpability and their own failures to act. One example is that year after year, governments have refused to respond to the reasonable request of the judges of the Federal Circuit Court for better conditions of work. These judges work very long hours under conditions of enormous stress, but their leave entitlements are much less than the family court or the federal court. They get one quarter of the long service leave that the family court judges do. They have 25% less annual holidays. It's fair to say that their individual workloads tend to be rather higher than those in the superior courts. This cannot be justified. 
the judges of the Federal Circuit Court often say privately to me that they feel the government is not listening to their concerns, not listening to the stress they are under, treating them as second-class citizens compared to other judges. And the workload of the, of the judges and their general conditions of service are an issue because tired and sick judges will make poor decisions, and that can have disastrous consequences. In short, there's a lot we can, we, 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 we can do, but we need to not reinvent the wheel and look at what we've already done successfully. Uh, thank you, Professor Parkinson. Uh, can I start then with the, the first matter which you raised, and that is the, um, the, the parenting management hearings, for the want of a better um, description, and the atrophying of that process and the, the lack of the pilot um, proceeding. Uh, it, it strikes me that, at least in parenting matters in the family court, um, that there are two principles which um, should underpin any system. One is the one which has always been set out in the Family Law Act, namely the best interests of the child. But secondly, when one is looking at the breakdown of a relationship, the desirability where possible and um, leaving aside exceptional circumstances, that a child should still have some sort of relationship with both the mother uh, and the father. Uh, if you start with an adversarial process where people are issuing subpoenas and filling in affidavits and filing them and serving on each other and getting up into a legal process, that seems to me to be contrary to the idea that you can build some sort of ongoing relationship not only uh, with the child but with each parent with the child into the future. Yes, and, and uh, this has been widely agreed by um, most people who work in the family law system. It's something that Alistair Nicholson said as Chief Justice many, many, many years ago and tried to introduce reforms. So, yes, we, we, we have to do what we can to dial down um, the level of conflict between the parties and the extent to which they are almost required by the system to throw allegations at, e at each other. And, and I know that you will agree with this, but I want, want it placed on the Hansard record, but if you start with some sort of process, an inquisitorial process such as a, a panel or something similar which you described, would that not be a better way to seek to resolve these disputes in the first place, and only when that proves to be uh, unachievable should it go to some sort of, uh, if necessary, adversarial hearing? Well, this was almost exactly the design that Brian Knox and I um, had in mind for the tribunal, which was going to be limited to self-represented litigants, but could be uh, more widely extended. There is a relatively small number of cases which need an adversarial system. If a father is accused of the sexual abuse of his children or if there are serious issues of domestic violence, if there are, in other words, reasons why one parent should not see the child at all, then that needs a pretty thorough forensic investigation. Um, and and that, that is quite a lot of the work of the courts at trial. But most cases, cases settle without going to trial and we could resolve many of those cases in a, in a quicker and less adversarial way. And we heard from the previous witness, a family law practitioner, Mr Wilson, that uh, only 5% of cases um, end up 
um, in the court, and of those 5% of cases, only 5% of them um, end up in a hearing. So that's a very small proportion of the total disputes which are first filed with the court. That's exactly right. I, I couldn't verify the 5% going to, to court. I don't think we've got robust data on that. But certainly of all cases which are filed, um, the evidence is that around 7% go to a uh, trial and a judgment. Um, about 15% the trial might actually start, but settles on the first morning or, or something, yes. Yes. Can I just ask you about uh, another matter before I pass to my colleagues? Um, in your written submission, you say one reason for the disproportionately high cost of property disputes is that the law is so vague and unclear, which invites litigation and makes the resolution of disputes unnecessarily expensive. Australia has one of the most discretionary systems of property division that I know of anywhere in the world. And then further on, you say this. Um, senior members of the family law profession who do not have the benefit of much knowledge of how other systems sort out property disputes have been fiercely resistant to change and have, as have some of the most conservative judges of the family court. Do you want to, could you elaborate for me uh, or for the committee um, on that and particularly in terms of are there better approaches to property disputes, the, the resolution of which, than we have at the present time? Yes, so if you look around the world, whether we talk about um, Europe or North America and other countries, a standard model is that the fruits of the marriage partnership or the fruits of the relationship are shared equally as a starting point. So um, the idea is that uh, husband and wife own everything in common, uh, which is acquired after the relationship begins, after the marriage starts. But not inheritances, not pre-marriage property, not gifts to one party, not damages awards, um, those things which are not the fruits of the marriage partnership. And then we deal with future needs either by spousal maintenance or by lump sum payments, what the French call a prestation compensatoire, which is a compensatory payment for the less well-off spouse, almost invariably the woman who's cared for the children. Um, that is a very easy system to work with. It, the principles are clear. There are few difficulties at the margins around uh, tracing pre-marriage property into marital assets. So if you own a house beforehand and then that's sold and that, becomes, that money is used to buy a family home, there, there are difficulties around those things, but they're not terribly hard for um, parliaments to legislate about. We have no such principles in Australia. We give a broad discretion to the judges, and the appeal courts cannot agree on what the principles should be. Thank you, Professor. Uh, Senator Hanson. Thank you very much. Um, Professor, you, you talk about family relationship centres, and uh, you were instrumental in they're being set up in, and at the time it's about 65. Apparently they're overworked. Um, people have to wait at least, can be eight months to have a contact with their children. Um, you require more funding. Should we expand it beyond um, just the family relationship centres and allow other people to set up these um, organisations so they can have contact with their children? So uh, thank you for the question. The problem is that the funding has not kept, kept pace either with population growth or with um, the increasing numbers of parents who are separating. 
Um, so what was a very successful system when it started, and you could get an appointment with, within three to four weeks um, and resolve your issues within 12 weeks, that has not been uh, funded to continue. And so you have the long waiting times that you have, have alluded to. Um, the magic of the family relationship centers was that the Howard government agreed to fully fund them. Um, they were set up and run by non-government agencies, but the government funded every, every dollar of them. It was the best money they could have spent on the family law system. Now, should there be funding for other organizations? Yes, as long as the government is prepared to put the money in. Um, but to do so is um, pound-wise. It, it, it would yield far more buck for the dollar, far more sorry, benefit for, for the buck than um, funding the courts at the level we have now have to. You talk about judges. Um, what is a grave concern to a lot of people is the amount of time that it takes for judges to hand down the decisions. I understand their caseload. Some can be up to three to 500 cases per judge, loads even up to 600 cases, some judges. And it can take them months, even years, before they hand down the decision. What is the best way to address this? Um, it is a very, very big issue. And what I'd emphasize is that there are many judges who have the same workload but manage to get their judgments done very quickly. Um, and that's because they are very good at their jobs and they're very e e efficient. And as soon as the case is finished, they uh, dictate a first draft of their judgments. We have other judges who um, have withheld judgments for up to five years. And this is shocking. Now, how do we improve that? Well, we have to um, give the Chief Justice every possible power and support to take judges out of trials if they're getting behind with their judgments, as some of them do. Um, and we have to be better at, se at selection. The selection processes for our judges um, in the federal system are frankly abominable. Um, there is no proper selection procedure to work out who might do the job well and who, who might struggle. And because of that, we have made some very bad appointments. And once we, those appointments are made, they can be with us for the next 20 years. Or even longer in that case, because it's usually life appointments. Should we then look at appointments of judges for a period of five to 10 years, or even five years, um, if everyone has to apply for their own jobs, even politicians have to re reapply for the public based on their performance, then should judges be, um, have to do the same? So once they're appointed, they're not life appointments, and usually for political reasons. Mm. Um, so judges in the federal system, Senator, have to retire at 70. Um, in the states, it varies from state to state. But um, they are... In the family court, you are able to take your pension after 10 years of service. And so judges who aren't coping, um, once they turn 60 and have done 10 years, they will very often retire. Now, that's a cost to the taxpayer, but at least they are making the decision to not continue with a job that they're not really able to do very well. The Federal Circuit Court has no such conditions, and the result is that... Um, Judges in the Federal Circuit Court will often go on till the age of 70 when they're terribly sick or burnt out or unable to perform the job because they don't have the capacity to take a pension. That is 
one fix the government could con- consider. Um, but constitutionally, we could not go with your proposal to have limited terms because the constitution requires federal judges to have tenure till, till 70. Unless it goes to a referendum by the people, which can be changed. Yes, yes. yes. Um, it would need a, a, a change to the constitution. The Family Circuit Court, the judges there are tied up in other civil matters and, and a lot to do with migration matters. There's also been the concern raised that they are really not up to speed with the family law um, issues and some of these judges um, should not be dealing in family law. Is that your understanding? Uh, frankly, it is. Um, the picture varies around the country. In Sydney and in Parramatta, um, judges specialise either in family law or what we call general federal law, which is mostly, as you say, the migration caseload and bankruptcy. But in Melbourne, or every judge does everything, and that's pretty true of Brisbane as well. Um, and some judges are well suited to family law cases, and some, through no fault of their own at all, are just not well suited to family law cases. So I think there has to be specialisation. And we've also got to do something about the, the migration workload, which is largely a legacy workload from, um, from the, all the boats coming. Um, the best way to do that would be to appoint 20 new judges who are at least 65 years old, which means they'll only have five years of service to run and deal with the, 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 with the backlog in migration cases. At the moment, in Melbourne, the Federal Circuit Court is not beginning to keep up with the level of filings and they're getting further and further behind largely because of the migration workload. Um, we've had um, organisations that have actually uh, wanting to and so is the Australian law reform wanting to do away with 50-50 uh, parental responsibility. It is in legislation but it's at the discretion of the courts and looking at what is in the best interests of the child. Um, do you, a lot of people and parents are saying they should be 50-50 um, automatically responsibility unless there is domestic violence, aggressive domestic violence, uh, charges, drug and alcohol abuse or criminal, formal, um, criminal charges laid against them. Um, do you believe this? Um, Senator, can I distinguish, as I think you have done, between joint parental responsibility and equal time? Now, a lot of the arguments about this issue are suffer from a lack of history. Prior to 2006, pretty much every parent had joint parental responsibility because it was automatic in the law unless the court decided to take it away. In 2006, when those reforms were introduced and we had the idea of equal shared parental responsibility, it only applied in cases where, or the presumption only applied in cases where there wasn't an allegation of violence or, uh, or abuse. So the 2006 reforms, most people don't understand this, the 2006 reforms actually wound back joint parental responsibility in Australian law. Now, the great majority of cases where there is no violence or abuse and there's not serious mental illness, joint parental responsibility is appropriate. The fact that you separate from your partner does not mean you cease to be a parent. Now, equal time is a different, diff different matter. Equal time only works in a minority of cases. 
Um, people have to live close enough to each other for a starting point. And they've got to have enough time to be able to um, take time off because the kids are sick and these are these sorts of issues. So people get those two con con confused. But no, joint parental responsibility should continue um, unless a parent is unfit to hold that parental responsibility. So if that can be done through mediation rather than going through the courts, it would be better interest for the for the parties concerned, but also for the children, rather than letting um, uh, an adversarial case go before the courts, which is more cost costing to the parents and um, detrimental as well to the to the ch children. So, if we do look at 50-50 um, parental custody, go back to what it was prior to 2006, unless, as we said in the cases of um, domestic violence and what is in the best interest of the children. Right. Um, false allegations. You did raise that about false Sorry, allegations. Did you want to reply there? Oh. Sorry, uh, thank, thank, thank you. I'm just going to make the comment that I think almost everybody, if not everybody, agrees that mediation is a better way to resolve these disputes. There are just some cases which can't be mediated successfully. So the courts always need to be there for... For, the, for some cases, but wherever we can sort things out early, it is far better for the children and, and the parents. And I know that if we go back to mediation, that you said nearly a third of all 601 certificates issued were because the other party failed to attend. More than half of all litigants came to court without having a 601 certificate, relying no doubt on the exemptions in the legislation but it is not clear to, to what extent those reasons were scrutinised. So, so basically, if the courts are saying you must do mediation and you go on further to say that you know, family counsellors or family dispute resolution uh, practitioners about the service and options, they, that they're not telling their clients to go through this, this um, to get mediation. Well, it may not be, be, be the lawyers. I think lawyers generally will advise their clients properly. The, a lot of um, parties will come to the court with limited legal advice. But, yes, they rely on, on exemptions. And the, the duty of the court is to consider whether to refer them to mediation anyway. And as far as I can see, that is not being enforced around the country at all. Um, so this is something the government could easily fix. It would, it, you just need, as I said in my submission, cost consequences. If somebody fails to turn up to mediation, they should pay the cost of that first court event and they should be ordered back to medi mediation as long as mediation is suitable. Just um, a couple of questions. You, you mentioned about false allegations. So are you of the belief that people do make false allegations of domestic violence? Um, this is a very, very complex issue. Um, and I, one of the issues, if, if I can answer it more generally, Senator, is that the adversarial system kind of forces you to say bad things about the other parent because although it's in the best interest of the child that we are wanting to make decisions, if you can show that the other parent has deficits or is abusive or is not a good parent, that supports your case. So this, the adversarial system um, probably requires litigants to exaggerate the faults of the other party and to understate their virtues. Now, 
Are there false allegations of domestic violence? There are surveys which have been done of the general public, and there are surveys done of magistrates in Queensland and New South Wales, who, where large numbers would say there are some cases where apprehended violence orders, restraining orders are sought in circumstances where there was nothing to it. Are those deliberately malicious and false? We don't know. But they can be tactical. And it would be foolish to deny that that ever happens. It clearly does in some cases. We just don't know how many. Just a last question. Then what do we do to protect those people who are concerned for their, their well-being with domestic violence? How do we determine... You know, who's telling the truth and who's not? Who's over-exaggerated to actually stop the other parent from seeing the children or to further their case? How is this best determined? Well, if I can come back to the tribunal concept, Senator, if you have a very experienced family lawyer, somebody with 25, 30 years of experience, you have an expert in family violence, or you have a, an experienced child psychologist or psychiatrist who's seen a lot of these cases, I think that is the best way to get to the bottom of these cases quickly. And you could do that in many cases in two hours, whereas the courts would take two days, three days, even four days sometimes to hear the same evidence in a traditional way. The, we have to trade off volume of cases against thoroughness. And it's better that we deal with more of these cases of domestic violence early and make decisions quickly and we have a Rolls-Royce system, which only a few people can afford, and they have to wait two years for. Thank you very much. Thank Garrett. you, Professor. Uh, thank, you, thank you, Professor Parkinson. And I want to take you back to the parental management hearings uh, that you've just been discussing, I suppose. Pretty much everything that you said after you said, I don't want to be political. Um, because I, I do remember the, the legislation and... My understanding is it did include matters that it, uh, where family violence was present, which wasn't your proposal at all, was it? Um, well, thank you. I was not a great fan of the bill. <laughs> it was over-engineered and rather laboured. Um, it did um, actually, after the initial consultations, exclude cases of violence, which was not my recommendation because I, I actually think that, um, frankly... An experienced panel of, uh, as I have described, of people with 25, 30 years' experience working with families would do far better than a commercial law-trained judge in getting to the bottom of these domestic violence cases quickly and, and, and well. The, the assumption, the argument was that somehow courts were better equipped to deal with domestic violence cases. But even the domestic violence lobby has been complaining for the last many, many years about the poor quality of decision-making in the courts. So... I think we offered a better system, and yes, it could deal with uh, many cases of domestic violence much better, frankly, than those cases are dealt with in many of the, of the, of, the, of our courts. But, but you're, you're going to have litigants that weren't represented. That was the whole point of it, wasn't it? But they were going to have to give informed consent to enter into this process without being able to get informed consent from their lawyer, in a way, in terms of what they were signing up for. Uh, at the end of the hearing, they would have had a binding determination and sanctions. They might have been, uh, they could have been compelled to produce evidence or produce documents, including being imprisoned if they didn't do so. 
And I think Chief, Judges, Chief Justice Pascoe summed it up best when he said they departed significantly from the principle of procedural fairness. So that's, that was what, what I objected to into the, the piece of legislation that actually came before us. Right, and I think, I think we had that, com, that, com, that conversation. I think we did. I think we did. But anyway, um, back to my question. But uh, let me, let me, let me, yes, no, please. Thank you. Let me respond to your question. Um, it is, in my view, the best system we could now devise for people who do not get legal aid. Right? Most people who are not well off will get legal aid, but some won't because they'll just be beyond that threshold. Now, it's all very well saying, as the domestic violence advocates, some of them did, oh, well, every victim of domestic violence should be legally rep represented. That would be an ideal world. I, I, I agree. But no government is proposing that the means test on legal aid will be, be, be removed. So what do we do for the people who don't get legal aid, who don't have that legal support? and who try to battle through the system themselves without a lawyer's help. It's all very well saying everybody should, should have a lawyer, as long as the government's willing to pay for it. Okay. Um, look, um, I, I might take you to, or sow the seed for something that we might come back to it and, uh, to chat about at another day. The, because we, we've heard evidence about family reports and, and the importance that uh, judges weight on um, uh, the, the weight that they put to uh, family reports. What about a, a panel idea where they compiled the family report, some sort of panel, so the experts uh, could improve the evidence that's before the court uh, in terms of uh, the family report? Would you like to comment on that, that suggestion? Anything which we can do to improve the quality of the reports uh, is, is, is worthwhile. Um, the difficulty in my experience with reports is that unless one of the court family report writers is writing it, the cost can be prohibitive. Regularly, I see in Sydney expert reports costing twelve, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars well beyond the wow. level that yeah. people can afford. And the family report writers are overworked and can take sometimes up to twelve months to be able to schedule an appointment. So resources are probably the bigger issue in terms of quality of reports, in my view. Well, and going back to your early comments, I think you said that there's no shortage of good ideas, and I want to take you to the uh, end of your submission, which concludes by saying, establishing yet another inquiry should not be a reason to delay substantive reform now. And you mentioned a, n a number of recent reports. I think the... the um, Sarah Henderson, the ALRC, uh, and others. The two these two reports include some recommendations are the same or very similar. So surely that's a good place to start for any government, uh, irrespective of the fine deliberations of this inquiry. Uh, should those recommendations from those earlier reports be implemented now? Uh, what I recommended in my submission, which I would stick to if I may, is that we should actually set up some sort of experts committee to review the recommendations in the last 20 years. Um, a lot of great work was done by the Family Law Council. I was chair for three, three, three years. Helen Rhodes chaired it off after me, did some fine, fine work. There's a lot of material going back 20 years which has not been properly um, 
considered. And okay. let me go back, if I may, Mr. Parrott, to a, a subcommittee of the Council I chaired in 2002. This is 18 years ago. We produced a report called Family Law and Child Protection. We recommended that the federal government set up a child protection investigation service to deal with child abuse allegations where there was no other report from the police or the hospitals or the community services which could adequately inform the court about those abuse allegations. It wouldn't have cost a great deal. It would have improved things enormously. But that was 2002. And Helen Rhodes... With it, when she chaired the Family Law Council, came back to a very similar idea with domestic violence cases. Um, it's not just the most recent reports. Okay. Is that, so that would be like Commonwealth docs, so you know, child protection people who were Commonwealth employees. It, it was, if I may say so, a very carefully thought through yeah, yeah, proposal. Yeah, yeah. We, okay. I, I wasn't we, familiar with that. We'll, we'll have a look. Thank you. And my, my final question, uh, the ALRC report recommends the Family Law Act be amended to include a rebuttable presumption of equality of contributions during the relationship. You say in your submission that this should be uncontroversial. Could you explain how that would work in practice and how it would help uh, separating families? Thank you. Well, if we go back to my answer to Mr Andrews, the great majority of jurisdictions around the Western world treat all property acquired during the course of the marriage or de facto relationship in Australia as equal. So the idea of a a presumption of equal contributions is just putting in different words really what the vast majority of jurisdictions of the Western world already do anyway. What it means is that we don't have to write long affidavits saying that um, I did the washing up and he did the gardening and so on and so forth. Um, we can just start from the basis that the fruits of the marriage partnership should be equally shared unless certain exceptions are applied. It's uh, not rocket science in family law terms. I, I just thought compared to other jurisdictions that our superannuation would change your thoughts on that because you know, since 1992 you know, we've basically had universal super since then so that's people you know, literally have dollars being held on trust for them in, in certain accounts now. Would that flavour things at all? And, you know, we're at $2.8 trillion now in managed funds. It's only going to increase in the next while. Thank you. That, that's a really important issue. Um, at the moment, there is no clear guidance from the family court at all on how we deal with superannuation, which is extraordinary. Because the, the, the heart of the problem is that people acquire super years before they actually form a relationship. They may be on their third marriage at the age of 40, but they've got 20 years of, of work, uh, which has built up super contributions. So there's a fairly simple answer to this, and that is that you trace the balance of the super back to the closest date you could find um, at a, around the time of the marriage or they began living together. And you say, okay, back in 1997, it was... 311,000, now it is X, and a starting point would be to divide the acquisition since that time 50-50. It would be a simple rule. It wouldn't be a sophisticated one, but it would at least give people certainty. It might make up for the fact that women, as a rule, in relationships are ending up with less superannuation because men, yes, t- I mean, men I mean, tend I mean, not I mean, to get pregnant. So, 
I think I, I think that generally women who have been out of the workforce looking after kids probably should get more than 50% of the um, super acquired during the course of the relationship. My proposal sort of does that because they get an increase in the value of the money held prior to the relationship. So um, it would be, as far as rough justice is concerned, probably the fairest uh, simple rule to adopt. Senator O'Sullivan. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Mr Parkinson. This is a fascinating discussion and I really do thank you for your submission. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a senator, but I'm a layman when it comes to law uh, on this panel. Uh, my background is actually in social services, so I'm familiar very much with the, the families and the issues that, uh, that some of these problems cre uh, create for families. Uh, can, you, can you just explain how the tribunal would work that you're describing? Yes, very, very briefly, it would work like this. Um, each parent who elects to go to the tribunal or is re referred to it would be asked to fill in a detailed questionnaire, um, online preferably, but doesn't have to have to, to be, where they can set out what the argument is all about, what the history of the relationship is, and so on and so forth. In our model, when both parents have completed that questionnaire, it would be analysed by um, somebody like a judge's associate, a young law graduate um, who could summarise the issues in, say, four or five pages for the um, chair of the tribunal, who would be a very experienced lawyer. The chair of the tribunal could look at that, um, call the parties in, and make such orders as are required. Um, maybe there needs to be a drug test ordered, maybe there needs to be a family report ordered but would move things forward, refer to mediation if that hasn't already occurred, and triage the case. If it couldn't be resolved, you would appoint an independent children's lawyer who would then prepare the case for the tribunal. And ideally, within a, a six months from beginning to end, if it couldn't be, be resolved, the tribunal would set the matter down for a, a hearing of no more than two hours. Um, this has been done in Oregon, not with a... Um, tribunal but with a court and it's been quite su successful in making decisions in less than two hours and then you'd have the decision by the end of the day now this is rapid justice it may not be 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 be, be perfect but it would at least give people an answer and would the parties have that have a right to appeal to a court i suppose would they yes of course and and look if, if, if you wanted to run the tribunal with lawyers, that would be fine. I mean, the tri tri tribunals operate with allowing legal representation, and generally the tribunal members talk directly to the, the applicant and the respondent, but lawyers can you know, suggest questions or make submissions. There's no reason why this model can't work with lawyers, but we were particularly concerned to help those who don't get legal aid and can't afford lawyers who then try to battle with the existing court system. And so where does the resistance for these sort of ideas, well, where, where does it come from, but probably more importantly, what, what are the arguments put up against such a model? Well, there were various arguments put against it. There were um, many of the domestic violence groups, but not all, um, many of them said, you shouldn't ever deal with domestic violence in a tribunal of this kind. 
everybody should have a right to a lawyer and that should be dealt with in the courts. And I've answered Mr Parrish about that. That's all very, very well, as long as the government will fund everybody to have a legal aid lawyer. Um, that was a lot of the resistance. The, the other resistance came from the courts, who I think understandably said, look, we already have a family court and we have a federal circuit court, and now this will be a third tier. Um, and we're creating too complex a system. I do understand that, but I think the benefits would outweigh the detriments. And all that we were asking for was a three-year pilot, um, which was budgeted in the in the budget for to 13 million. Um, at least try these things and work out what the problems are and work out whether they should continue. Thank you. Uh, Senator Waters, do you have any questions? Yes, I do. Thanks, Chair. Thanks, um, Professor Parkinson, for your submission and your evidence so far. Just picking up on a, um, a line of questioning that has been uh, common from um, some of the committee members about women apparently making up allegations of domestic violence to somehow benefit them in the family court. Um, I'd like to ask you about whether the opposite occurs and whether abusers lie about the abuse. And the similar question of um, how can we ensure that both mediators and family relationship centres are properly trauma-informed as well as sufficiently trained on family violence and coercive control to be able to deliver justice. Thank you. Look, uh, my honest view is that false allegations, completely untrue allegations, are pretty rare. I think they happen, and most magistrates who hear these matters in the state certainly have said, look, we've come across cases, but they're not very common. Uh, false denials of abuse would be extremely common. Um, but there's, there's a middle ground here, uh, and that is that um, in any relationship which um, has broken down, you will find bad behavior. Um, we, none of us are saints, and you would have situations where one of the other parties has just lost control and yelled and screamed at the other. You can have cases where they've thrown things at the other and thrown fists and things. This is sadly a very common issue. And the, the point I was making was that the adversarial system kind of um, encourages us to exaggerate those issues. And if there are allegations which um, are not substantiated, they're more likely to be probably exaggerations of real events than completely made up. Um, that would be my best guess. But yes, false denials would, would be very common. I think the level of training around family violence is pretty good in the family relationship centres. There's a lot of work being done. Um, but wherever you have a workforce which has turnover, you have to keep training. You have to keep funding that, that training. Um, and of course, judges who have no family law background, who come from commercial law backgrounds or employment law backgrounds, they particularly need training in this area. Are they receiving that training? Uh, I would say it's pretty limited. Okay, um, thank you. Uh, you've talked a little bit about, um, well, you've talked quite a lot about mediation. My interest and one of the other uh, questioners asked this also is, um, 
how do you understand or how do we ensure that mediators can recognise where there's a disparity of power? And I'm not talking about what you said was the bad behaviour in a relationship breakdown. I'm talking about instances where there is family violence, where there is clearly a um, serious issue of, of uh, power and control being exercised by the abuser. How is mediation um, appropriate in that circumstance and how are mediators how can they be supported to recognise the indicators of that coercive control? So, thank you, Senator. The first work on this was done in the early 1990s by NADRAC, the um, National Council for Dispute Resolution. And there was at one stage a, a view that it simply was inappropriate, full stop, to um, mediate whenever there's any concerns about violence. We've had regulations. Um, for 20-odd years, which require mediators to um, test for this before conducting a mediation to ask the right questions and to screen out cases where there is violence. So I think we already have a pretty thorough system in place which you couldn't easily improve on by changing the words. It comes back again, I think, to, to training. Um, and awareness of issues like coercive con con control. I would expect that most family mediators would be pretty aware of this, but there's always a turnover in the workforce, and you could always do more. Okay, thanks very much, Professor. I've got some more questions, but I'll pop them on notice because I think we're running out of time. Thank you. Thank you, um, Senator Waters. Is Ms. Stegall online? No. Uh, Professor Parkinson, we've run out of time. Can I thank you for your written submission and also for uh, elaborating it on, uh, upon it on our discussion this morning? It's been most interesting. And um, we may come back to you at some stage to tease out um, some more of the issues that have been uh, raised this morning. But thank you very much for your contribution. And thank you for your time. Can I now welcome uh, Dr. Menna, Dr. Jeffries, Ms. Rathus, and Professor Field um, to uh, assist the Hansard record. Could I ask each of you to state your name and the capacity in which you appear today? Maybe start with you, Dr. Menna. Um, my name is Helena Menna. I am a lecturer in criminology at the University of New England. My name is Samantha Jeffries. I'm a senior lecturer in the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Griffith University. My name is Zoe Rathis and I'm a senior lecturer in the Griffith Law School and uh, the four of us were involved in uh, research together which is why we're appearing together. My name is Rachel Field, I'm a professor of law at Bond University Law School. Um, I appeared before you yesterday in the capacity of um, representing the Queensland Law Society uh, so I just need to make clear that today I'm appearing um, independently as an academic and the views that I express today aren't necessarily those of the Queensland Law Society. Uh, thank you, Professor Field. Um, you've lodged submissions 700 and 710, but Ms Rathis, are there any amendments or additions to those submissions? No. 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 And information on parliamentary privilege has been provided to yes, you yes. prior to your appearance today. Um, we have your written submissions, and you can take it that the committee have read the written submissions, but can I invite you to make some short opening comments if you would like to? I'll make, yes, I'll make those on behalf of the uh, research team. So we are a research team that is cross-institutional and multidisciplinary. 
Uh, we've been working together since uh, 2015, conducting empirical and um, scholarly research on particularly the issue of family reports and the writing of those uh, reports. I'm sure you're all aware of uh, what family reports are, but it might be helpful uh, to just cover off some of the key uh, aspects of family reports. Uh, they are a critical form of expert evidence uh, in family matters. They are written by experts who have expertise in psychology, social work, uh, also sociologists write, write reports. They are written, uh, they come from a range of contexts. So re reports are written by family report writers in the court context under Regulation 7 and also there are others that are privately requested. We'd just like to mention that um, in terms of the court reports that are written by, in terms of the reports that are written by family report writers in the courts, uh, that the practice around that is um, best practice and that um, they are uh, well resourced and well trained and there is a good regulation of those reports. Um, we're concerned though about the nature and quality of reports that are written in the other contexts. So our key submission uh, to this important inquiry is that family reports and the, and the system around the writing of them could work as currently um, established in the system if the process was properly funded and if there was a cultural shift towards prioritising the safety of children. In terms of resourcing, um, Professor Parkinson mentioned that family report writers are uh, overworked uh, and under-resourced. We agree with that. Um, so family report writers uh, need to have resources in order to be able to conduct the process of the report interview um, properly and with efficacy. They need time, um, they need um, to be able to connect with the family appropriately and they also need proper remuneration. Uh, we also um, submit to the inquiry that there needs to be uh, better accountability and regulation in relation to report writing. There needs to be a clear avenue for complaint uh, in relation to reports. And we as researchers, um, bona fide researchers, uh, believe that it, it's necessary for there to be clear legislation that would allow researchers like us to access court documents in order to conduct research so that we can provide government and policymakers with an evidence base on which to reform the system. And, and so on that point, I'll hand over to Zoe to make some further remarks about the Family Law Act. Thanks, Rachel. Oh, thank you. It's just to pick up on some of the issues that I raised in my um, individual submission. Um, I did want to comment on uh, the issue uh, which seems to be one of the concerns of this committee around uh, the uh, what a, having a protection order uh, granted by a state court might mean uh, when you're in the family court. And just to reiterate, and I gave one example in my submission, that really the, the, the family courts will make their own determination in relation to family violence. And the fact that a protection order has been made or not made for that matter does not seem to really uh, carry much sway. And from reading hundreds of family law cases. That's what I see in the judgments and all of my discussions with uh, practitioners and with people who've been through the courts um, would tend to, to, um, uh, uh, to confirm that. So that 
a notion that people might go for a protection order for a um, tactical reason, if they do, they've been poorly advised because it is unlikely to be of tactical uh, benefit. So that's one of the things that I wanted to say. Um, I'm sure I will be asked questions, but uh, I do believe that the current arrangement uh, in, the, in the current words in the Family Law Act are highly problematic. I think that the presumption of that equal shared parental responsibility um, is in the best interests of children has actually proved extremely dangerous. I do understand why such an idea is an ideal, um, but unfortunately actually having a presumption at law is an extremely powerful legal tool that really tilts the way decision making is, uh, the, the direction of decision making, and is intended to do that. And to have decided to uh, go with a presumption of equal shared parental responsibility, I say, has in the end uh, made it very difficult for victims of violence to raise it, because then they are always seen as flying in the face of a presumption that sits in the legislation. And I think that Richard Chisholm's work back in 2009 started to highlight that. It is one of the reasons why the ALRC has said we need to get rid of the existing presumption. I will say I don't particularly like their option. And I did listen to what Professor Parkinson just said. Uh, I do consider him to be a leading expert in family law. I'm nervous to disagree with him, but I'm not sure that I really agree with him on the position that existed before 2006. And I'll, I'll come back to that if the committee's um, interested. But uh, it was, uh, I'm not, I'm not clear that uh, orders were still made prior to 2006 for joint guardianship and, and joint uh, parental decision making. My understanding is that the law as it exists is that each parent has parental responsibility unless that is changed by court order to make it either joint prior to 2006 or the unfortunate inclusion of the word equal after 2006, which just made everyone think equal time and equal parental responsibility were the same thing. I suppose out of that I just want to say that words are incredibly important. The words that we end up using in the Family Law Act are a much bigger message than perhaps is always understood. They're a message to the community. They're a message to all the uh, professionals in the system, including family report writers. They're a message to judges. So we actually have to get those words um, very, very correct. Um, uh, just a couple more things I should say and then I'm sure I, I, I have much to say about Professor Parkinson's tribunal. I did, I was one of the many people who wrote submissions with concerns so I'm happy to address that. Um, if I could just pick up one point that Professor Field made. Um, it is our research that the family court is extremely well resourced and uh, does great training for its family report writers. We are unable, though, to specifically comment on the quality of the reports that then emerge, and part of the reason for that is the issue of not being able to clearly access court files. We've not been able to read family reports. So, yes, they're very well resourced, and we would like to see uh, report writers outside the courts as well resourced, what we don't know is the exact translation of that resourcing uh, into uh, quality. So that was just one other uh, point. I think that that's most of the things that I wanted to say um, in advance. Thank you. Okay. Um, if I can lead off Professor Field, um, 
in the whatever 2,000 or so submissions we've received um, to this committee, uh, there are a number of themes, and one of the themes is concern about the quality of the family court uh, reporters. Uh, and those concerns vary, obviously, depending on the position of the person making the making the concern. But it does seem that there is some considerable inadequacy in in the system. Now, I hadn't appreciated until you said the, about the difference between when when I was reading the submissions, as to ask myself the question: Was this a court-appointed family reporter, or was it an independent one? Um, to check that, so I'm certainly go back and have a look at some of some of those, but. Um, surely there should be some, as you suggest, accreditation system, um, some regulatory system that applies to all family court reporters in this regard, and I'm sure you agree with that from your submission. But more than that, um, is, is there um, imbalances in this system? And we heard from, I think it was Professor Parkinson, saying you can pay up to $20,000 for a family report. Well, that's, that's just bizarre. I mean, that's ridiculous. Um, and then wait eight months or whatever to get a report. So should there be some more regulatory control over this that doesn't expose parties to a family breakdown um, to those sort of costs? I think the inconsistency in the system of report writing is a problem. Um, some report writers uh, ask for very reasonable fees and the amount of work that goes into writing the reports uh, is significant. Uh, a person said to me yesterday, whose mother is a report writer, um, that she doesn't know why her mother does that work. Um, it's not worth it. And because it's also quite dangerous work, um, if you write a report that uh, one of the parties isn't happy with, um, death threats can ensue. Uh, so it's difficult um, work, but it's very important work, and appropriate remuneration is, is essential. Um, I think what people are paying for uh, when they're paying large sums of money is for a, a, a quick report, and they're going to somebody who is um, very highly regarded in terms of the uh, report writing, and that would then um, be influential in the court because a lot of store is placed in these reports by... Uh, judges in matters, but also these reports influence uh, to a significant degree uh, negotiations in mediation or, or private settlement and also um, a person's ability to access legal aid. So um, it's a complex issue. Uh, the report writers need to be adequately paid, but they, they, shouldn't, they shouldn't be gouging the system, I suppose. Zoe, do you want to add? I mean, I, th I think that that is... It's. Uh, I know that, that this committee is um, rightly concerned about the costs that some lawyers charge, um, and the same thing happens in in the social science aspect of the of the family law system as well. And and people with money will do that. Um, we do have, on the whole, a single expert system here in Australia, which means that once one family report has been prepared, if it does go against a party, and it may be quite dangerous in the way that it does that. So if you have a family report writer who doesn't really understand family violence and who has not really talked about that adequately in the report, according to one of the parties at least, it is extremely difficult to be able to get another report written because the presumption in... Or the, I shouldn't use that word presumption, really, but the assumption in our system is that we operate best with single experts. Now to my understanding of how things operate in other countries, 
as a basic premise, I understand that. We do not end up in expert wars like uh, happens in America, where, where it's the, it is the hired gun approach. And when I read the literature from America, I, there's a whole lot about it that is irrelevant to Australia because that's what happens there and it does create a very different um, scenario. But clearly people with money can pay for more comprehensive, more detailed family reports, but always the risk of that is that it's the person with the most money who selected the report writer and it's like they say, you know, a good, a good lawyer knows the law, a great lawyer knows the judge, and a great lawyer knows the family report writer that's likely to write a family report favourable to your client. So I take it from that that whilst not advocating the American system, you believe there needs to be more checks and balances in the system in relation to family court reporters. And before you comment, we, we, we've had mixed, you know, we have mixed evidence about this. We, we hear... Uh, and in written submissions and in already in verbal submissions yesterday and maybe even today about um, uh, allegations that um, some judges always believe a particular family reporter and you might as well give up if it's not on it's not favorable to you at that stage versus other judges who throw a family court reporter's report out and take no notice of it whatsoever i'm not taking one side or the other i'm just saying inconsistency like that in a family law system is not very good I mean, th th those are the same things that we've heard, certainly um, in the interviews that we did. Um, generally, the view is that, on the whole, judges go very strongly with family reports, which does mean that for a party uh, for whom the family report hasn't said important things is in a very difficult position, particularly if they're self-representing. So you can get a very vulnerable client who ends up being not well represented in the family report and then has to represent themselves in court and will have to cross-examine that family report writer about the fact that they didn't say the things that that, that person thinks were most important. It, it, is, uh, it is very difficult. No, I would not advocate for a system like in America, though. But on the other hand, I think, you know, if you look at the uh, best practice... Um, what are they called, best practice principles or guidelines that are published on the Family Court and, and Federal Circuit Court website that everyone is supposed to have uh, access to in relation to how to deal with cases that involve family violence. Tucked away in there, there is actually um, a suggestion that in cases where family violence hasn't been very well dealt with, that an expert family report should be obtained. Our understanding from all of our research and my reading of case after case is that that almost never happens. That is not a reality. It's an idea in a document. It's not a reality of how we go about things. Mm. Uh, I'd like to come back, if we have time at the end, to Professor Parkinson's proposals, but I'll let my colleagues... Uh, uh, Mr Perrett. Uh, thank you. And further to that, uh, my understanding is the um, Sarah Henderson report from 2017 and the ALRC report both recommend uh, accreditation for family report writers. You, you yes. uh, agree with that? that yes, yes. And, I mean, we gave evidence to that committee and we um, made submissions to the ALRC, which were agreed with by many others uh, as well. That was a very strong theme. And, yes, we believe that accreditation and ongoing, that, that you would do the same thing as, as for lawyers. There'd be a, you know, continuing professional development um, expectation, which... Uh, it depends on which profession mm -hmm. the report writers come from at the moment, what their Social professional workers, body... That's right, yeah, that's yeah. right. Well, and just teasing out the thread completely then, and um, 
de-identified reports made available to academics to do research. Would you be in favour of that, perhaps? We, uh, we would be so grateful, <laughs> because it has been a, a block <laughs> yeah. uh, for us. The, the other thing... So would I'll, that need a change to the Family Law Act, or well, is there some... Yes. Would it be a reg? A we, say that, we say that Section 121, which is, of course, intended to prevent publicity, confuses that question. So, and I think that the ALRC didn't completely... Uh, we did make this point. We, there's a bit of confusion around that. We would say, let's just make it clear. So, what, so you would receive a de-identified report? Yes. So you don't need the names, you need... No. Oh, yeah, we don't need the names. But what we do, we do actually need all of the documents, though, because the, the issue would be how is what's said in the affidavits that have been filed and potentially okay. other expert reports... De-identified affidavits would be okay. De-identified everything. We do not need to know the people. But you do need all the all We the do content, need all, all the... the we need the whole the court file. How the sausage was made. That's so, it. OK. Sorry, my... Um, further to family report writings, um, your submission says that family reports have an impact on legal aid funding. Can you explain what you mean by that? I'm not sure who... Oh, well, well, I mean, in, in, because legal aid has a merit test, and so if you have received a, a, um, a family report which is unfavourable to you, then legal aid will say, well, you don't have sufficient merit in your case. Now, I have said for many years, including when I was in private practice um, and in community legal centres, that it seems to me that that's a complete irony. You give the person who's got the... I mean, I'm a lawyer, and I teach law students now to become lawyers. The challenge of being a lawyer is to represent the person with the unfavourable report and to show what the problems are with it. But what happens is the person with the report that's already favourable gets the lawyer and the person with the really difficult case to argue it's reverse logic, it doesn't it? get a lawyer. And often part of the reason perhaps why the family report is unfavourable is that you have someone who has difficulty articulating their story or is afraid to tell their story. OK. Um, and just finally finishing off on report writers, the complaints procedure for, for family report writers, would that sit alongside accreditation or do you see something else or would there be something comp comparable, a profession we could go to? Doctors, lawyers, bakers? It's... it's um, Bakers, perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> um, well, that's a market mechanism. That's, yeah, that's right. Um, look, I think it is quite difficult. We, we made some... Uh, we have made some suggestions in various submissions that we've written. Um, it is quite difficult because you have the different professions involved. At the moment, the, the position of the court and, and is... Just for the record, so report writers, psychologists, you mentioned a few of them, social workers, what would be... Sociologists as well. Sociologists, OK. That would be the uh, other kinds rate. of therapists. It's mainly social workers and psychologists. Okay. Um, there are a few psychiatrists floating around. Psychiatrists and, well, yes, as well. But right. there'd be the minimum, the, so, the smaller number. So certainly, all three of those would have their own professional mm -hmm. accreditation yes. process. All three of those, wouldn't they? Even the maybe not the sociologists. Yeah, yeah that, no. The, so, so it, it does depend on the exact qualification. But what, but the issue is that what the professional bodies say is complaints can't come to us. Because if you brought a complaint to us, you will automatically be breaching Section 121 of the Family Law Act. All right. Okay. And so that's why then there needs to be a a discrete system set up, and it would sit beside accreditation, but it would be uh, it would be quite different. And one of the advantages that that we see in a complaint system that that operated like that is that that 
group, however you establish it. In fact, I think that the complaints group needs to be a little bit like Professor Parkinson's tribunal. I'm, I'm happy for that tribunal to be dealing with professionals not who've not had complaints made. It, it could be similar to a, to, a, to a legal, but you do want, you'd want to have um, a lawyer on it, you'd want to have someone who holds the same profession as the person complained against, um, okay. perhaps you have a community rep, you know, I mean those kinds of yeah, ideas. Okay. But okay. the uh, one advantage would be that in the end they will end up with a bird's eye view, so that if there is a repeat offender, they'll start to see that because at the moment nobody else knows when a complaint has been made. So maybe you've got someone out there that there's been five complaints made a year. That, uh, how does anyone know that? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, they end up in the federal court and on TV. Well, that can happen. I believe. I, okay. Uh, ALRC recommendations seven and eight. Your submission talks about the ALRC um, and you don't agree entirely with recommendation seven and advocate for a removal of the presumption altogether, which you, you touched on. Uh, can you tell the committee what impact it would have on separating families if the presumption was removed from the Family Law Act and recommendation eight was also implemented? Would it save court time? Would it save costs? Would it make the law clearer? Would it make families fleeing family violence safer? Anything else you'd like to add? Certainly, it's my view that it would make uh, families dealing with family violence um, much safer. Um, I don't actually think it would make any... Uh, I don't know that it would make a difference... It may not make any difference one way or another in terms of costs or issues like that. I mean, the reality is that most people go to the family court having agreed that they will have equal shared parental responsibility, even if they're arguing over time. So that, you know, in fact, a lot of the orders that end up being made, that aspect was made by consent at the beginning. The parties have gone in and said to the judge, we agree with this, but what we're arguing about is time. So it often happens. It used to happen before 2006 as well. So that, you know, that, that sits there. But when you make it a presumption, in fact, I think that's encouraged litigation and fighting Oh, and, and certainly fighting, you know, through FRCs and other places because it is so um, dramatic in the way that it pushes decision-making that people end up arguing because of it rather than um, not arguing because of it. Everyone else? No comment? Okay. It came through very strongly from professionals as well in our, in our family report writing research how, how the, quite a few of the... Uh, professionals that we spoke to who were talking to us about family reports spoke about the ways in which the presumption and terminology like meaningful relationships impacted on the way that everyone uh, made their decisions and I, recommendations. I think I'd just add that um, the 2012 amendments uh, to the Family Law Act which um, tried to ensure that uh, safety was a priority, uh, our research indicates that that hasn't caused a cultural shift in the practice of family report writers. So um, it's a, a, a continued emphasis on um, looking to write reports that will support um, shared parenting and um, allowing um, perpetrators of violence to have um, you know, contact and uh, time with their children um, in, in circumstances, as our uh, research indicates, where that wouldn't be safe. Okay, thank you. So now my last question is about parental alienation, which a few submitters have referred to. Are you familiar with that term and can you explain what it means and is it supported by experts? 
I think that one has to be for me. <laughs> um, uh, so I have recently published, uh, or had an article uh, published, which I think I provided a final proof version um, to the committee. In that, I looked at the history of that term here in Australia. So the idea of parental alienation, it, it has a very unfortunate history because it stems from the work of Richard Gardner, who used that term particularly in relation to saying things like, you know, women lie about the fact that their children have been sexually abused and, 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 and women lie in family law proceedings. And that was that. US child psychologist. He was a. That's right. Okay. Who, who became so controversial in the end that his ideas really have been um, set aside by everyone, no matter where they now sit. No one goes back to his work, and it is understood that it emerged from a very unfortunate um, place. Now, in terms of, I think your last part of the question, do you know what do experts say? There, there, it is a very divided um, field, and so I take the position that I do not say. So, so parental alienation, a definition would be where children become resistant to seeing a parent where there is apparently no reasonable uh, explanation for that. So where this this isn't understood, and so so what happens is. There is then a, a, a everyone goes well. Why could that be? And so the blame then tends to land on the parent with whom those children live no, no, most no. of the time, which is most often the mother. So the reality about what's happened with parental alienation is it becomes gendered in the way that it's implemented and discussed, and it tends to be women who are accused of it uh, by men. Now, not exclusively so. And there are women who uh, say that they've been alienated from their children. Often those women will also be saying that he was very uh, controlling. It's often, uh, for those women, an extension of coercive control, that he's now using that to uh, influence the children or to affect things. I do not say that no woman has ever alienated the children from their father or uh, joined with them in some kind of resistance. Men and women can do terrible things after separation. The person that they loved is now the person that they hate. The difficulty, though, with that term is it is so tied up in the baggage of its creation, it is so tied up in a very gendered uh, use, that there is no question that parental alienation becomes a very easy answer for men who have been violent either physically or coercively controlling to, as soon as the kids are resistant to see them, instead of the men taking responsibility for the violence that they might have committed and working on perhaps becoming a more attractive proposition to their kids, they go, she's alienating them. And it's too easy to do that. And it becomes then very difficult to unpick what is the truth in that situation. Sorry, so, Chair Sully Stegall, could I ask a question? Yes, certainly. Thank you. Um, on, on, this, on this subject, yes. Sorry, on, on I, the question of parental alienation, though, um, how then do you account for situations where children essentially end up choosing a parent? So in circumstances where there is no domestic violence, and there is, there in fact often um, are potentially orders in place. But due to 
correlations between parties, that a child ends up choosing a parent, do if it's not alienation, um, how else do you account for that in your report writing? Uh, okay, I, I'm not really talking about it only in the context of family reports, I should say, so I'm probably not going to answer it exactly in family report writing. But I, I suppose that one of the difficulties is that, I mean, how do we know that the violence wasn't true in a particular situation? So that, for example, if someone is giving evidence here before this committee and they say, um, you know, I got alienated from the children. She said I committed domestic violence. I didn't. Well, we don't really know which of those parties is is telling um, the truth. We even know that sometimes judgments get it wrong. So even if a judgment says that we don't think there was much violence here and so we're going to say it's alienation, well, that could be wrong. So it's very difficult to be certain um, about what has uh, occurred to be to be saying uh, how do we how do we deal with children who choose sometimes children might choose sometimes children choose because there's violence and that violence hasn't been able to be proved sometimes you know some of the cases that I've read and I've read hundreds of these alienation cases odd things happen like one child is choosing uh, you know is is preferring one parent and the other child goes happily off to the other parent, and yet the mother gets accused of alienation. Well, that just seems really odd to me. Uh, you know, why, why would she do that? So, I mean, kids do make these decisions. What I suppose becomes quite scary is some of the suggested remedies, which include immediately changing residence um, and sometimes then denying any contact between those children and the preferred parent for a long period of time. And there is research that suggests, unsurprisingly, that that is incredibly traumatic for those children. No matter what might have led to their preference, that's, I mean, we, we talk about hearing the voice of children and, and, and following children's wishes in family law, and then when it comes to this idea and give it that label parental alienation, we seem to be happy to completely disregard the profound wishes of sometimes very vulnerable children. And so that's what becomes a, a problem, um, that the remedy might be so dangerous that we need to be very uh, careful and, you know, actually understanding why a child might have reached a particular position is a very, very difficult thing to determine. Um, Stegall, I think you mentioned um accounting for that choice in, in contexts where there isn't a history of violence as well, did you? She did. She did. Mm. Yeah, so I, I just... Um... That's what I was looking at, because in instances where there is violence or there's allegations, uh, you know, there, there is that, that pathway of explanation. It's more in the other where there is maybe an... Uh, I mean, we are talking about such a small percentage of cases, but where there is an unacceptance of a, or, or just not a willingness to co-parent or, or, you know, a, a, a involving the children so that they end up having to choose. Yeah, so and I think we can account for choices where children are making choices um, just in terms of the nature of human relationships that... Um, you know, we still have a society in which there is usually a primary caregiver for the children and one of the parents is, is predominantly, um, you know, bringing an in income. Uh, so that, I think, is, is, is a factor that um, a child might then choose to be with the, the primary carer or with the parent that they just have a stronger connection with. 
But my understanding as well from, um, from being in, in, in practical context is that children find the choice, if, they're, if they have to make a choice, very difficult and will opt for, um, you know, often, you know, trying to keep the peace between parents and, and that is an inappropriate responsibility to place on children. You know, I agree. I guess it's those rare cases where there's that choice to cut out completely a parent. And if, we're, if it's not labelled alienation, if there is no violence or issues, then uh, how does that be taken into account for? Because if we can uh, differentiate the, the factors, then um, I think, you know, it's certainly a lot of cases that have come to us and submissions to the inquiry are people claiming that they're being alienated. And so if we can categorise or separate out the causes a little clearer, I think that may help people. I suppose the difficulty is uh, that um, it, being certain that there really wasn't violence and abuse uh, or, or particularly coercive control or... Uh, violence that wasn't physical. So that, I mean, certainly someone who comes to this committee and says, I've been alienated, the other side is probably not going to be coming to the committee. So the the reality of what's gone on there and even perhaps what a judge might have found, maybe uh, a judge found there was violence but that person still feels alienated. It It, it is... Um, clearly a very difficult uh, issue that you're raising, Ms. Stegall, and we, you know, it is, it gets to the bottom of uh, some of the great difficulties that, I mean, family law is always going to be a very complicated area uh, to work in, but uh, the international literature suggests that parental alienation is overwhelmingly raised where there are allegations of violence. It is extremely rare that it occurs in other situations, that that allegation gets raised. It becomes a defence to claims of, of violence and abuse. Now, the, there are very small numbers of cases where it might, may be alleged where, the, the, where there aren't allegations of abuse, but it, it would be difficult for this committee, be, because of the nature of who might appear here, to understand what was really on the other side of someone who says that they've been alienated. Yeah, no. Sorry, I just had one other little question. I mean, I certainly, as a practitioner in the field, appreciate the importance that family report writers um, have in the weight that is given to them in the court. But I do welcome your recommendations and thoughts in relation to maybe more ongoing professional development and training of writers and maybe more standardisation of skills and training in that respect. Um, yeah, I certainly welcome some of the recommendations in your submission. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry, Professor. Senator Hanson. Thank you. Just want to make it quite clear and on record, you do not deny that parental alienation happens. No, I never have. You have you've made a comment that you think it's, it is basically gender and they believe that it's women that's mostly doing it? No, no, no. Now, now, so what I'm saying is that both men and women can behave very badly after separation and both are capable of trying to involve the children in very poor behaviour to the other person, which might sometimes mean that children become hesitant to see so the other not, parent. So you're not going to put on the record that you're saying it's mostly directed from women that are doing no, it? I'm no, I'm saying that the allegation... No, 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 I'm not saying uh, that. That is, that is 
changing my words. I say that both men and women occasionally may may um, uh, conduct themselves in a way that might mean that children become resistant to seeing the other parent. What I am saying is that most of the allegations in relation to parent, parental alienation are made by men against women. I'm not saying that when that that when those allegations are made that it's necessarily true though. So yes, most allegations are made against women. That's a different thing to saying most alienators are women because actually true, res true unfounded resistance is very rare. So I guess we can add to that that um, if a parent is preventing uh, contact with another parent that uh, sometimes that is protective. So that will be an action that they're taking in order to protect the child and it comes out of concern and it's sometimes misunderstood then as, as an alienating behaviour but it's actually a protective behaviour. I, look, I totally agree with you in cases there it is for the protection of the child mm. um, against the other parent, whether it be male or female. But it's also the fact that um, parents will use children as pawns because they may have separated from their partner but also want to actually not um, see that partner have contact with their own children, which is an issue, but how do you deal with that? I think we need to deal with that in terms of um, better resources in the system for counselling and for supporting people who are going through relationship breakdown and assisting them to be able to put the best interests of children first because it is a very difficult time for people. Their lives are in chaos. They're not making very good decisions for themselves and um, and, and it is, it's just very difficult. So I think, you know, access to, to counselling um, and better support would, would address some of that for some people. Yes, yes. I, just, I just wanted to add something there that what's come out consistently through our research and also past research is that women, so mothers, even mothers who've experienced domestic violence at the hands of the fathers of their children, want their children to have an ongoing relationship with their father, but they want that to happen in a safe way. It's fair, I, it's, I don't think there's much evidence to suggest that many women actively try and prevent that relationship. They want that relationship to continue, they just want their children to be safe. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned about... Uh, I'll let Senator Hanson finish and then come to you, Senator Waters. Yes, thank you. Sorry, I thought she'd finished. No. You mentioned about the 50-50... Um, parental custody, parental time, you're, you're opposed to that? I'm, I'm opposed to the way that it is currently set out in the Family Law Act. So I don't say that, that no one should ever end up with that arrangement. Um, it obviously works very well for some parents and some kids, particularly kids of particular kinds of ages, and parents who did a lot of co-parenting when they were together. One of the difficulties that happens uh, is that Sometimes a separation has partly come about because they're not really co-parenting and they're not really uh, they're not having a very successful relationship with each other or in relation to their children. People then separate, and all of a sudden, someone who's not been a very active parent wants uh, equal shared parental responsibility and equal time, uh, and has the, you know children being sent you know to spend uh, an entire week with a parent who's never agreed to have an overnight alone. Now these things are highly problematic. So I don't say that they should never happen, but what I'm saying is the difficulty that we have at the moment is the, pres the fact that it, there is a presumption, 
which is, as I say, a very powerful legal way of expressing something. That says the usual state of things is that after people have decided that things are so bad that they're going to separate, that it is usually in the best interest of the children for those people to share parental responsibility. Well, that, that shouldn't be a presumption in law. That is actually in legislation, but it's at the discretion of the judge, isn't it? So no, it doesn't, no, it's so it not. Does, so it doesn't automatically happen. You don't automatically ha have that 50-50. Are you talking time or are you talking well, well, parental responsibility? Time. No, well, no you don't... No, it's so it goes, so, all the time. So, the so you don't automatically get that. It may be in legislation, but the fact is, is it's up to the discretion of the judge, the court's... Um, who gets time with the child? Okay, in so, the best interest of children. Yeah, so the, 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 the presumption is about equal shared parental responsibility and the presumption is very strong and we know that in something like about, you know, somewhere between 80 and 90% of cases, and that includes cases that have... That's what I'm saying. I mean, a lot of parents just agree to this. So, you know, m most matters end up with equal shared parental responsibility orders um, agreed. Once that order has been made, a court must consider equal time. Under Section 65 DAA, they must consider equal time. They then have to decide if it's in the best interest and if it's reasonably practicable. If they don't do that, they must consider substantial and significant time. So it's a cascading legislative um, system where once one... And, and also, uh, to make it clear, the presumption can be not applied because there's been family violence or some other reason, but that doesn't stop a court from making an order for equal shared parental responsibility. So a judge can say, I can't make the presumption here because of this, but I'm going to make an order anyway, not via the presumption, that's just going to be my order. And once that order has been made, the way that Section 65 DAA is worded, then they have to consider equal time and substantial and significant time. The other thing I would say, Senator, is a lot of these never go to court. It is those words in the Family Law Act that also become extremely influential in how people negotiate at a family relationship centre, in, in, in other, wherever they might be doing family dispute around resolution, the around the kitchen table. People are, people are sent brochures that this is what the Family Law Act says. You go anywhere. Every advisor, and I think I said this in my submission, or maybe it's just in my head I said it in my submission, under Section 63DA, I love the section numbers. <laughs> so easy for everyone to follow. Section 63DA says every advisor must speak to anyone who comes near them. So that's lawyers, family dispute resolution practitioners, family consultants and counsellors must speak to people about equal time and equal and substantial and significant time and equal shared parental responsibility. And that's where I say it's become dangerous. It pushes people towards one particular outcome as if that's the out that is the outcome supported by law. And if you want to do something else, you have to prove why that's an exception. All that I say is it should be completely open and we work out what's best for the children in that wouldn't it, particular wouldn't it be family. Wouldn't the idea of having that as the starting point? If there is aggressive domestic violence, you know that domestic violence can be for someone saying, look, I'm in fear, or the fact is if you make um, uh, quite a number of uh, phone calls saying, I want to see my child, I want to see my child, 
that being classified as domestic violence as harassment. So there's different degrees of domestic violence. Now, if you start at that, out of 50-50, and then the parents say, well, you know, I can't look after the child this week because I've got to work. How about we come to some agreement that we actually have it, I'll have the child on the weekends and you have the child through the week. It's a starting point because a lot of parents now go to court and the other parent may say, I don't want you to see the child at all. And then what they happens is... They won't get is, very far with that. Well, I'm sorry, I've heard cases that. it has. It has. And that's what happens is that parents then takes months and months to get to see their child in the family centres, in the family relationship centres. So then you have aggression that happens because they are they are um, feel they're not seeing their children, they have no contact with the children, and this is where your problems happen. So if you actually know that in separation, why is it all right the day before they separate, they can be a parent to that child, but the day after separation, they're alienated from their children? And this is the problem. Well, I, mean, I think that the reality is that um, where people separate and there is that kind of tension that... Oh, look, in all honesty, the family court very rarely makes orders that mean that one person can't see the child. Your issue about waiting... I couldn't agree with you more, Senator. There is no question that the delays in the family court, no matter what the issues are... Be, you know, I mean, people who are in the family court and are caught in a delay, or we know that that must mean that they're people with significant you know, difficulties that they're trying to resolve in their marriage or in their, in their relationship breakdown. When anyone is subject to delay who needed to use the court, that is going to cause very high levels of, of anxiety. There's no question about that. But that's about better resourcing of the court so that people don't wait so long. The reality is that what you're saying is what happens now. That The, the presumption is there of 50-50 um, you know, equal shared parental responsibility. People are talking about equal time at, at, right at the beginning. That's what happens. That, that is why... Um, it. It is that reality that has meant that we've had a range of inquiries. It was the 50-50 thing that, you know, that after the dreadful issue that happened when um, little Darcy Freeman was thrown off the, the, the bridge in, in Melbourne, led to the federal government announcing another inquiry and getting Professor Chisholm to look at everything. And he looked at it all. Every, every time we push towards saying to people, automatically assume 50-50, we find that there are instances of violence. And, I mean, you know, the terrible situation that, of course, we've dealt with here in, uh, in Queensland in the last couple of weeks. You know, Hannah Clark was allowing um, Baxter to see the children on a, on a regular basis. This will, have been, this will have been part of all of the information that she will have been given. It would have been almost impossible for her to have resisted doing that. And if she had, it would have been very possible for him to accuse her of being an alienator, particularly as this is not a case that would have been described as aggressive violence. And that becomes the difficulty, that we know that family violence can be most dangerous when it isn't necessarily aggressive. Look, I totally agree that, that was horrendous what happened to Hannah and her, kid and her children. It should never happen. But there is also <clears throat> that 
It's on both sides. I read your report and it's all about women. Do you agree that there are men that are aggrieved? That are men that face domestic violence? There are men that, um, you know, are taking their own lives? You just asked me a lot of things in one go then. I think that there are men and women who are aggrieved by the family law system and who don't end up with what and they want. And some men facing domestic violence? I, can I... I would prefer continue. if you didn't ask me if I admitted things. Just, Ms Rathis, you can continue. Thank you. I, I'm not really here to admit things, Senator. I'm here to present my research. Right. I've been working in this area since 1981. I'm doing my best to... And, and I have worked a lot with women, much more with women than with men. I've also worked with male clients. Are both men and women aggrieved with family law outcomes? Yes. Sometimes is the aggrieved person wrong because they've got what they deserved, yes. Sometimes are they entitled to be aggrieved, yes. But this happens um, to both men and women. We also know though, and my social science colleagues here um, who haven't got to speak as much as lawyers, um, <laughs> the, you know, the statistics Shame. are very, Shame. that's right, the statistics are very clear that domestic violence is something that is very gendered and that violence in the home happens more often by men towards women. Um, women do commit forms of family violence, particularly in the broad definition that we have. Um, so, uh, yes, no one, no one, as uh, I think Professor Parkinson told us, that no one was perfect. Um, and and that, is, uh, you know, that, that is true. But uh, in the end, uh, men who are upset about uh, what has happened in the family court, we, that is why we say we need to have a better resource system so that there are places that people can go to continue to work through these um, issues. And as my colleagues did say, our experience and my own experience as a practitioner for many years and as a researcher, women nearly always start off trying to find the way to give contact. It's when it starts to go wrong that things go wrong. Just, um, just want to put this on the record because I believe in quality and I believe that people should be treated properly. And I think there's, you know, we have women's shoulders, we have, you know, places where women go with their children if they're, you know, not in the home anymore. We don't have that for men. We don't have that for men and the children. And I think there's a bit let down in our society that we're not um, doing this. One in 16 men have experienced physical or sexual uh, violence by cohabitating partner since the age of 15. One woman a week and one man a month were killed by a current or a former partner in the two years from 2012 to 14. And one in five women and one in 20 men have been sexually assaulted or threatened since the age of 15. So, so it is out there. And that needs to be acknowledged as well that we are, um, you know, looking at all sides of what happens in domestic violence and at the end of the day, it's about the children, what's best for the children. And that's, um, that's why uh, with what we have to find in this inquiry. I just want to make a comment that those statistics are far more complicated than what they sound like on, at face value. So the fact well, that... that was on the government website yep. that was set up in February of yep. 2018. The fact that women kill their intimate partners, that's usually done in retaliation. So it's usually self-defence self because they've been victims of domestic violence over a long period of time. So many of the domestic violence death review committees have 
come to that conclusion, that when women kill their intimate partners, it's usually because they've been victims of domestic violence. When men kill their intimate partners, it's because they've had a long history of perpetrating domestic violence against her. So there's a, there's a difference. You can throw the stats around, but the background and the reasoning is very different. We can all throw stats. stats around to suit our own agenda. I'm but going it's to keep fact. moving if you finish, Senator Hanson. Senator Waters? Yes, thanks very much, Chair. Thank you so much to the panel for your extensive evidence today. Um, I just wanted to follow up on one point, which is around the alienation issue. Um, in your opening statement, um, Mr Rathis, you said that it, uh, it, was un it was inaccurate to suggest that DVOs were being used to gain an advantage in the family court. I've heard from women that say raising concerns about abuse has in fact resulted in them being found to be unwilling to facilitate a relationship between the children and their father. So I'm interested in whether there's been any research um, to show the disadvantages that raising family violence concerns can have for women in the family law system. Look, there's some evidence from our research that supports what you're saying um, and that actually having a, a DVO or a protection order can be viewed by the court as a fuel making up false allegations, that you've done it strategically to gain an advantage. So it's actually, in reality, not going to be to your position, having a protection order and coming to the family court with that in hand. It's not going to make that much of a difference. And for the record, getting a DVO isn't like someone's handing out lollipops. You do have to make a case. It's not that easy. We also know that lawyers uh, you know, will advise clients not to take out a domestic violence order because they, the lawyer's advice is that it will be perceived as, uh, as a ruse. Um, so that, um, you know, it is, yes, it is actually, uh, you know, w women on the whole who take out a protection order take it out because they're looking for protection. Yes, thank you. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I guess I'm interested in sort of rebutting the suggestion that somehow women are making stuff up um, I, I don't. I don't think that's what's happening. And in fact, um, uh, some women that I've had contact with have said, "Look, they have been penalised um, for raising allegations of violence because there's then um, the partner then says, well, 'Well, you're just trying to alienate me from the kids.' So uh, I guess I'm just after whether or not your research is quantified." far from an advantage that women might get in raising violence, actually that they might be facing a disadvantage in the family court if they um, raise family violence concerns. Look, look undoubtedly so, Senator, and, and in a way that is also you know, one of the issues um, in answer to some of the questions that um, Senator Hanson was, was asking, is that the, the great difficulty is understanding the extent to which um, this notion of parental alienation and this this context of our family law system that basically says share the kids after separation and if you don't you're flying in the face of this overwhelming um, philosophy that under, underlies our family law system that what it does is it creates a silencing uh, of violence. It, women will be given the advice not to raise it don't say anything about the violence. In fact, in the uh, case that I chose to use in my submission, Ma and Mills, um, you can see very clearly that 
there's been two protection orders made. The judge looks at them extremely carefully and comes to completely her own conclusions about what happened before each of those incidences. But what's interesting is by the time that mother actually goes on to the full hearing uh, in the Federal Circuit Court, it is very clear that she's been advised by her client, by her lawyers, to not run her case on the basis that family violence is at all relevant. And you, you see that that's, that is an announcement that's made. And so the case is run as if family violence isn't an issue. And this happens all the time, um, that, that people are told not to raise it, not to run with that as an issue. And so it creates a false impression about what the issues are in family law cases, because it looks like family violence wasn't an issue sometimes in cases where really what's happened is the woman has been silenced by legal advice that's told her to stay silent. But how on earth, how on earth do we fix that? Uh, well, I, I guess that, um, you know, it, it is about a better resource system. It is about ensuring that really good um, uh, inquiry can be made into the issues that uh, people are raising, that there really is extremely good training for all of the professionals who are likely uh, to make recommendations, um, family report writers, ju uh, judges, and I mean legal practitioners as well. Uh, you know, legal practitioners have to keep up their CPD in the law to continue their practicing certificate, not in family violence. Um, so, you know, these are, it, it is about um, resourcing of the system. In case I don't get a chance, I do just want to say that um, one of the difficulties that I have with Professor Parkinson's idea, and look, I can see within his ideas some some really uh, helpful uh, particular matters, but in the end, his description of his tribunal sounds to me like what the government said the Federal Circuit Court was going to be like. I mean, sure, I mean he's got his multidisciplinary panel, but in the end. If matters started to go there at the same rate that they go to the Federal Circuit Court, it's just going to get as, as jammed up. And this idea that it'll be two months to do that and six months to do that, that's what they said about the Federal Circuit Court. And he's involving all the same people that we all know sometimes get it right. I mean, we say there's some fabulous work done by family report writers and some shocking work done by them. So he wants the panel with the ex, the, someone with X number of years' experience in family law. Sounds to me like the definition of a family court judge, not a federal circuit court judge because it's different uh, rules of appointment. But uh, I, I, I don't hear in what he says. It, it, it just sounded like the same system, slightly differently, uh, constituted, and I don't see why that system won't end up with the same problems. And in fact, he wants the most vulnerable uh, and disadvantaged and likely inarticulate people to be the ones who fill it. So it, it will be a, an extremely complex uh, system for the professionals involved um, to run fairly. And he's saying, and then if this happens and you appoint an ICL, and if that happens, you get another expert in. You, you, you have a two-hour hearing. Sounded to me like I think that's what happens in the Federal Circuit Court. Sorry, I was saying the impression might have been to get rid of these solicitors out of it who are actually dragging on cases to make a fortune out of family law court matters so that parents can actually come to a decision before professionals and find an outcome rather than dragging it on for an extensive period of time. I'm just, I'm, I'm just concerned at the moment okay. that we're well over time. 
Uh, Senator Waters, if you have any more questions, because I know that Senator O'Sullivan has a question and we're running over time. So can we do, just, just try and keep it succinct, please? Yes, thank you. One final question, Chair. Um, just in relation to the proposed merger that's now underway that um, the court... Uh, look, I don't, I don't pretend to be an expert on the, uh, on the merger bill. Um, it, 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 is, uh, it's, it is very complex and certainly people are inside the court um, know more about it. Um, I would say that, look, I don't, you know, I, I wrote submissions back in 2000 or 1999 saying don't start a second court. I, I never thought it was a good idea in the first place. Now I find myself having to explain about the merger. I, I have no problem ultimately with everything being in one court. I never thought the two courts was a good idea. But I think that the model that's currently represented by those bills needs a lot more work. I think the way that it was gone about a couple of years ago was very unfortunate. I think that law reform by media, um, that, the, that the court seemed to be a bit in the dark, that the, that the judges were really seen as pariahs. Uh, yeah, family court judges, as, as um, Professor Parkinson said, family court judges, federal circuit court judges, the people who work in those courts work incredibly hard with very traumatised, complex clients. And really, they need to be very deeply involved in discussing how an exact model would work. Lawyers who work in the family court, all the different professional groups who are involved, we, if there is going to be a merger, we need to get that merged model correct. But I do think that there is room for a couple of layers uh, in family law decision-making, more complex, less complex. But what we know is that the less complex in, you know, quote unquote, become the group that are overwhelmed, as has happened with the Federal Circuit Court. Um, the other thing, the other thing is that the critical importance of specialisation. So yes, judges get it wrong. Yes, everyone can get it wrong sometimes. But basically, we do have an amazing repository of expertise in family law there. We just don't tap it very well because of how um, we we resource the system poorly. Senator O'Sullivan. Yeah, I'm conscious of time. So I might just ask if you can take this on notice, if you're able. Just You, you, you had started talking about the, um, the the ideas that Professor Parkinson had. Are you able to provide on notice just you know, more expansive comments and thoughts on that? I'd be very interested in hearing about it. I send you the submission that I made okay. to, his, to, the, to the bill in relation to his tribunal to begin with, but I, I can, uh, listening to his... One of the difficulties is it became clear from his evidence this morning that his, his and Brian Cox's idea and what ended up in the bill were not quite the right. same. It did, look, for, for someone who's worked in family law, though, for 40-whatever years, I hate to say it, but that's true, um, it, it, is all, it was also... Look, proce process, again, was an issue. It was extremely frustrating to be a member of the family law community and here on budget night in May 2017, if that's the right year, that 12 point something million dollars had been set aside for a tribunal that none of us knew anything about and had never heard of. The bill turned up in November. So doing things like that didn't help Professor Parkinson in bringing the family law community on board. That, that's not a good process. Good law reform process 
that in, the family law community is a very cohesive community. It is a true community of practice, broader than, I don't just mean the lawyers, I mean all the professionals who work in the family law system. It is a community of practice. And doing things, taking reform forward as a government in a way that brings that whole community along is a very important way of doing things. Whereas if the lawyers are always described as dreadful human beings, the judges are seen as pariahs to ignore, um, and I mean, we've been very careful, we hope in our research, to continue to show the good work that's done by family report writers and the problems that arise. And th that respect is extremely important. Can but I, I thank will send that you very much for your written submissions and also for coming along and discussing them with us today. And if there's some further information, we'd appreciate uh, it being provided to us. But thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we resume. Can I now welcome representatives from Craig, Ray and Associates via teleconference, uh, Solo Legal, New Way Lawyers via teleconference and ASD Family Legal. Um, for the Hansard record, could I ask each of you to state your name? Starting with you, Ms Parsons. My name is Caroline Parsons. My name is Melanie Harris. My name is Caroline DeVries from New Way Lawyers. My name is Craig Ray from Craig Ray and Associates. Um, thank you. Uh, Craig Ray and Associates have lodged submission number 84, Solo Legal number 85, and ASD Family Legal number 114. Are there any amendments you'd like to make to those submissions? No, Mr Chair. No. Thank you. No. And uh, I just advise you that information on parliamentary privilege has been provided to you prior to your invitation to appear today. Um, can I invite you to make some open, short opening statements uh, and please take it that your submissions that have been made have been read by the committee. So who would like to lead off? Ms Parsons, to... yes, go. Thanks Mr Chair. Um, good morning and thank you and the committee for inviting me to appear at today's hearing. My submission is based on the theory that perpetrators of family violence often have a personality disorder, specifically antisocial personality disorder, which I'll refer to as ASPD, or malignant narcissistic personality disorder, or narcissism. These two disorders are described in the fifth edition of the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, more commonly known as the DSM-5. I understand the DSM-5 is the primary system for identifying mental health conditions in Australia. ASPD sufferers are deceitful, lack empathy, and may repeatedly commit acts of physical assault, including spouse or child beating. ASPD is estimated at between 0.2 and 3.3% of the population, with more than 70% of sufferers believed to be male. Narcissism is characterised by grandiose sense of self-importance and a lack of empathy, which may result in the exploitation or neglect of others. Narcissism is prevalent in 0 to 6.2% of the community, with 50 to 75% of narcissists being male. Accordingly, while it is currently accepted that sufferers of these disorders are predominantly men, women may also suffer from narcissism or ASPD. In my view, survivors of family violence often suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, 
also is defined in the, in the DSM-5. This term essentially encompasses the as yet unofficially recognised condition of complex trauma, which is trauma caused by repetitive interpersonal abuse. PTSD symptoms include an, ability to, an inability to remember an important aspect of the traumatic event due to dissociative amnesia and distorted cognitions that lead the individual to blame themselves. The prevalence of PTSD varies geographically from about 3.5% in the US to around 0.5 to 1% in other countries. Women are more likely to suffer from PTSD than men. In summary, I submit to the committee that the evidence of both perpetrators and victims of family violence may be unreliable. Perpetrators because they are likely to lie or exaggerate and survivors because their memory of events is likely to be impaired or they may inaccurately blame themselves for events which occurred. Suffering from a personality disorder may also affect the ability to parent children. Is that where family violence is alleged, the family court should appoint a single expert to determine whether either of the parties suffers from ASPD or narcissism. If the matter proceeds to hearing, this expert witness should be cross-examined first to determine whether there is a likelihood of either disorder being present. The court should then take the expert's testimony into account, first in determining the veracity of the evidence given by a disordered witness, and second in determining appropriate parenting orders. I also believe that all officers of the family court should undertake extensive training in complex trauma to avoid triggering or re-traumatising survivors of family violence. With that background, I look forward to answering any questions you may have on my submission. Thanks, Ms Parsons. Uh, Ms Harris? Uh, thank you for the opportunity to appear before the committee. Uh, I make this, I've based the submissions before the committee upon um, experience as a solicitor in dealing with uh, family law cases affected um, by autism and the article that was um, produced to the Australian Law Reform Commission is um, based on case research uh, as well as experience as a solicitor in, in the courts. Um, the observations, uh, I guess, in relation to matters um, that are affected by autism are that um, the proper evidence doesn't appear to be uh, put forward in cases and as such um, in dealing with families who come to me uh, the common complaint is that they feel that the issues surrounding autism that impact upon the family uh, they feel that they haven't been heard um, and I put forward as reforms that uh, in terms of resourcing there needs to be uh, a greater awareness amongst experts, uh, particularly dealing with children, um, that are making investigations on behalf of the court uh, and other processes uh, to ensure that the proper evidence as to the issues that are affecting the family are put forward, which places the judiciary in a better place to reach an outcome that's fair for the children. Uh, Mrs DeVries. Thank you for the invitation today. Traditionally, there have been two types of family law service providers in Australia. On the one hand, there has been government-funded service providers such as legal aid and community legal clinics that provide free and subsidised services. 
On the other hand, there's been private law firms that provide services on a commercial basis. The problem is, however, many individuals are missing out on legal services and self-representing because they fall through the gap. They aren't eligible for government-funded services, but they cannot afford the cost of a private lawyer. In 2009, New Way Lawyers opened as Australia's first non-profit law firm and thereby established a third type of family law service provider, the not-for-profit incorporated legal practice, or as it's more commonly known, the non-profit law firm. Over the past 10 years, New Way Lawyers has grown to become one of the largest family law service providers in southeast Queensland, with four branch offices and a team of 17 people who have helped over 3,500 individuals. New Way Lawyers demonstrates that the non-profit law firm model has the ability to reduce the financial cost of family law proceedings. Being a non-profit law firm means that there's no shareholders, partners or directors in the firm seeking to make a profit from families' difficult situations. The purpose of the fees charged is simply to cover costs, not to generate profit. In New Way Lawyers' experience, this has meant that the fees charged for services are generally at least 30% lower than the fees charged by law firms operating on a commercial basis. The lower fees means the model has the ability to respond to the gap in legal services by providing services to individuals who aren't eligible for government-funded services but cannot afford a private lawyer. New Way Lawyers also demonstrates that the non-profit law firm model has the ability to minimise the impact of family law proceedings on the health, safety and well-being of families and children. In the absence of pressure from investors, care initiatives for clients are encouraged and prioritised, with all team members contributing to the client care process. New Way Lawyers has a comprehensive care program that provides care, support and encouragement to clients through a range of different initiatives. When individuals receive such holistic care and encouragement, as well as legal advice and representation, it invariably leads to more positive and family-focused outcomes. It is respectfully recommended that the non-profit law firm should be promoted, encouraged and incentivised as the preferred service delivery model for family law services. It is also recommended that law firms providing family law services should have a designated client care program in addition to any legal service offering. I'm happy to take any further questions on the submission. Thank you, Mrs. DeVries. Mr. Ray. Look, I think I've put my um, submission in writing, so I don't want to waste the time of the committee. If they've already read it, I'm happy to expand on any issue that they require further discussion on. Thank you, Mr Ray. Can I lead off then? And my question, I suppose, is both to Ms Parsons and Ms Harris. In relation to the respective conditions that you've referred to in your submissions, um, autism in one case and um, uh, narcis narcissism and ASPD and ADHD in the other, um, in, in the way that the system operates at the present time, there's not really any incentive, is there, to highlight this for the court. In other words, in the adversarial system we have at the present time, um, it seems to me unlikely that these sorts of issues are going to be raised in the court proceedings um, unless someone is aware of it and can raise it in a way which is going to be the advantage of that party. Can you, can you elaborate on...? If 
how this plays out at the present time. Okay. If, if I may provide an example as to how it, it can arise and perhaps as an illustration of the implications, um, and, and not only in terms of children and families, but in terms of time and cost to proceedings. Um, a case where, and I refer as Party A and Party B, uh, and, and children where there were two children diagnosed with ASD and other comorbidities. Uh, the issue arose in that parent A was trying to take children to practitioners, multidisciplinary um, treaters, for want of a better word, as referred by the children's paediatrician. Party B was in denial as to whether the children, in fact, displayed this behaviour, had the diagnosis and should be taken. The proceedings, well, Party B went as far as to make official complaints about the children's treaters, forcing the children's treaters to back away from treating the children, forcing parent A to keep taking the children to different treaters. The proceedings ended up with government departments being subpoenaed to obtain the complaints that were being made, which had the effect, I think, some 10, 10 subpoenas were issued. Um, sourcing the complaints that were being made about treaters. In the meantime, these children were placed in a position where they were effectively denied the ability to access treatment that had been referred by their treating paediatrician. Those proceedings had already been to court. There was already a set of family law orders in place, final orders, for the parents to operate under. And having said that, domestic there were domestic violence matters uh, in those same proceedings. But in terms of the issues arising, the sole issues in a case such as that were, were revolved around uh, uh, accepting diagnosis and the children being able to access treatment for their disorder and due to parental conflict that was interfered with. Um, the children were prevented for some time, I believe six to eight months, from accessing uh, early intervention treatment for their disorder whilst proceedings were going on. And unfortunately, the proceedings were dragged out uh, a little due to having to subpoena information that wasn't readily provided um, by parties. So, so should there be some independent mechanism by which such information can be made available to the court? I mean, should there be, and I'm thinking off the top of my head now, but should there be some um, questioning, uh, some survey, something from the registrar uh, in relation to parties to a conflict in the children of those parties, just to check that there's not autism or some other condition? It is, yes. It is one of the suggestions in terms of reform is that where, and it's, it's applicable not just in terms of autism, it could be in terms of any form of special needs diagnosis, for want of a better word, uh, that where there are issues flagged as such, uh, that perhaps parties um, attend a interview or a uh, 
a counselling session to isolate the issues that are in dispute, so that if there is a diagnosis that's in dispute or if there is treatment in dispute, um, that both the, the issues from the outset um, can be raised, the court is aware of it and the court can simply seek the information it requires to make a decision that's in the children's best interests. Because in cases that have been analysed in the, in the article, one of the issues uh, that appears to have taken place is that uh, whether, it's a legal whether it's a legal practitioner, whether it's uh, a family report writer, whether it's clients, whether it's... If the evidence is not adduced, then it's not available for consideration. Therefore, that prevents the bench from making a decision on it. So if there is a mechanism from the outset to say this is a case that we have a potential diagnosis, these are the potential issues that come up. And it may be, um, I'm not suggesting this is a band-aid for everything, but it may be as simple as um, ordering the parties to subpoena documentation from a paediatrician who treats a wide variety of diagnosis and illnesses in, ch in children, for example. And, and then taking it to a different place, um, because what I understand from your submission in particular, Ms Parsons, is where one of the parties to the dispute, uh, you say particularly in relation to where domestic violence is a factor, um, has a has a, a mental condition or a psychosocial condition that impacts upon their behaviour. Um, how how does the court? That's what I'm trying to tease out. How does the court become aware of that if it's not something which um, the parties themselves are able to identify, and it may not be in the interests of the party suffering from that particular um, disorder to identify it for the purposes of the court? But if I accept your evidence and, and the, the studies upon which it's given, this can have a significant outcome in terms of the, the decision of the court. Correct. Um, Mr Chair, I think as you mentioned in Canberra, the, the Family Law Act gives the Family Court more powers, more inquisitorial powers than a normal adversarial system. So a judge does have the power to manage proceedings in a way that other judges and other courts don't usually have. So my submission would be that judges do have the power to appoint a single expert who is either a forensic psychologist or a forensic psychiatrist with expertise in this area to give evidence about whether either of the parties suffer from the disorder. Um, and I, I should say, I think it's important that both the mother and the father um, be subject to diagnosis to avoid gender bias. Um, uh, and I also believe that um, the, the, the diagnosis should be limited to, to the truth of the parties and their ability to parent. So I want to point out from the outset, I don't believe a diagnosis of a personality disorder should be weaponised against the other party. No. But it's more likely to be weaponised if it's used in an adversarial way rather than an inquiry by the court itself. So I, I know there's been a lot of discussion about adversarial versus inquisitorial systems. If the committee would like to hear me, I have some views on that. I'm, I'm particularly interested in hearing you, so please okay. go ahead. Um, <laughs> Mr Perrett, um, 
So I think we, you've been talking a lot about inquisitorial versus adversarial. Um, without understanding possibly the, the broader context of those terms and what they mean, an inquisitorial system is part of the civil law system which exists in Europe and Asia, whereby, as you know, there's codified laws. The adversarial system is part of the common law that was introduced to Australia and the UK. Now, the big difference between the two is that the civil code system and uh, the inquisitorial system is based on voluminous legislation that is very prescriptive about what constitutes a, an, an inappropriate act in society. So a civil code jurisdiction, for example, take the family law jurisdiction. Um, what, the, what a civil code jurisdiction will say is you should, not hit your, you should not hit your spouse three times. It's that prescriptive. When it comes to the hearing, the judge then has to determine is that true or not. And that's the only role of a judge in an inquisitorial system is fact-finding. In an adversarial system, we have, quite, we have framework law. So Parliament says family violence is not okay. You go to court, the judge then hears all the evidence given by both parties, and they have to look at the parties. And one, one party saying, he or she hit me three times, the other party saying, he or she didn't hit me at all. The court has to decide whether that is true or not true. Um, and then they have to decide whether, as a matter of law, there should be consequences that follow from those facts. But as you say, there are some aspects of the in, in our essentially adversarial system, at least in family law, there are some aspects of inquisitorial. And the question, I suppose, is maybe not one or the other, but are we getting the balance right? Particularly, take your example, where um, there may be health issues that are not otherwise raised. If there's no responsibility or no obligation or, in fact, incentive on the part of the parties to raise these things, but they could have profound consequences in terms of the outcome, is, is there a greater role for the courts to explore? Absolutely. I think so. I think what we need to do is take the good parts of the, adversary, of the inquisitorial system and try and integrate them into the existing system. Um, because I don't believe that, um, that we can really change the system at this point. It would involve a complete overhaul of all of our laws, the parliament, the way the constitution works. So what I think we need to do is build in the good points of the inquisitorial system and keep the adversarial system. because. What a lot of civil law lawyers, um, the criticism that is made of the common law system, or of, sorry, the inquisitorial system is very fixed, it's very rigid, and it doesn't flow. And there's no opportunity to make decisions in the interests of the parties. So the good thing that we have with the adversarial system is a judge can decide what is the best interest of the parties, given the evidence it's received from both of those parties. And I think we keep that. But what I would suggest specifically that we take from the inquisitorial system is the fact that in the criminal system you can take evidence of past behaviour to determine whether or not someone may or may not be telling the truth or whether someone may or may not have done what they are accused of doing. Does that make sense? So my submission is that if you bring in a single expert, they will analyse both parties, they'll analyse past behaviour of both parties to come to an opinion about whether or not there is a disorder that is characterised by deceitfulness, they can then bring that evidence to the judge and the judge can then use that to decide A, which, which witness is most truthful and B, which is likely to be the more protective parent. Leading on from that, wouldn't that be in the court reporter? Doesn't the court reporter do that? So they interview the parents and... The family expert? 
Well, it's supposed to be. Is it? Sorry. Yep. Yep. The family, the family report, report writer. Yes, that's right. Yes, yes. My apologies. Thank you. Hanson, yep. yes. That's exactly what the family report writer does. They take evidence from um, the community, from people, from the schools, all, this, all of this kind of stuff. But I think the, the, the focus of family re report writers at this point is to try and establish, um, obviously, what is in the best interest of the child, but they don't, they don't take into account um, these disorders. And... Um, yeah. <clears throat> All right. So, are you talking about who does <coughs> who decides that 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 person should be assessed? Who makes that decision? I mean, so you're going to before the courts. You've you've got your legal representation. So, at what point do you decide? Because what you're saying here, ASPD, an essential feature of ASPD is deceitfulness, particularly dishonesty and fraudulence, misrepresentation of self and, and embellishment or fabrication when relating truths. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about narcissists. Yeah, Narciss being narcissistic. Yeah. So, so what... All right, so at what point do you say? If people put up affidavits, they put up their... their um, even domestic violence, this has been the whole issue. Who's telling the truth? Yep. So at what point do you actually say, okay, I think you should be before an expert? So there's a, a, a presentation by the Australian Institute of Family Studies that was released in October 2019 um, that says that 3% of separated parents use courts as their main pathway to making parenting arrangements. It says these are predominantly families affected by family violence, child safety concerns and other complex issues. It's my contention that, that all parenting matters, or pretty much all parenting matters that go to court involve either one or either of the parties being disordered. So I believe, I believe any time a, a, a case goes to court that there should be an expert ordered before the hearing to make an investigation into whether the disorder is present in either or, or both of the parties. But if these people have this, no, being narcissistic, They've even had it when they're rearing the children before they separated. Mm -hmm. So that's not a concern to the society. Then why all of a sudden, that because of separation, we have a great concern about these pe these people have been part of the children's lives? Um, it's it's a really it's a good question, Senator Hanson, and one that I've thought a lot about. Which is, why are we not worried about personality disorders now? Why are we raising it only in the context of a, a family law inquiry? And the answer to that is that. Um, people who are, go to therapy, they go to counsellor psychologists, generally do so because there's something wrong. They're depressed or they're anxious, something needs to be fixed. People with these types of personality disorders don't believe that there's anything wrong. In fact, they believe that they are superior to others and that they possess traits that normal people don't possess. In other words, their lack of empathy means they can do things that other people can't. All right, then we have a system in our society that people are being... Um, <coughs> into docs about how the children treat they can't even go and investigate children that are mistreated in homes now to look after the welfare of children let alone you know getting individuals being investigated before ask experts in divorce matters so if, if we can't deal with the system now that our children are now in homes not being cared for and looked after and actually hurt in some cases murdered so don't you think we should clean up that first before we then, you know, start delving into this? Anyway, let's just... No, look, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think, it, you know, there, there's a lot wrong in society, but 
all we can do is, is my submission is really focused on what the family court can do to um, help people who come before it. Um, I'll move on to you, Mr Craig Ray, um, Associate. How do you envisage how it can be written into the legislation with regards to grandparents having time or involvement in their grandchildren's lives? Okay, well, uh, Senator, the answer to that, I think, is that um, under the provision in the Act, the fundamental overriding uh, need is to make a determination as what is in the children's best interest. And underneath that overriding provision, there are various subparagraphs of the section which deal with matters that the court can take into account when determining what is in the children's best interest. And one of the things that could be mandated in the legislation is um, the children's right to have the involvement of their parents in their upbringing. Um, hear a lot of complaints from grandparents that um, are actually distraught because they don't have time to see their, their grandchildren or be part of their lives. So that is a big issue. You, so you talk about retirement benefits for judges. Can you expand on that, please? So at the moment, as I understand it, uh, the Federal Circuit Court judges are on a different package to that of family court judges. And if we're going to reform the court, one of the things I put forward in my submission is that we really should have just one court. I don't see the benefit of continuing with two courts and the expenses associated with running two registries to support systems. And to that end, uh, I would have thought that it's logical that all the judges then be on the same package. You are correct with that. Uh, Federal Circuit Court judges retire in 15% superannuation, where family court judges retire in 60% of their wage for the rest of their lives. Um, well, another thing, if you bring it down into one court, my concern is then the, the, family, the family court hears cases such like the Magellan cases um, and the bigger cases to do with property, um, larger property disputes. Um, if you actually put it into uh, the one court and it has been stated that some of these Federal Circuit Court judges are not up to doing the job, they are not up to speed with family law, they are inundated with workload and uh, how do you expect them to deal with more complex cases if they can't handle um, cases now? Oh, I think the same could be said perhaps of some of the family court judges as well, Senator. Um, and some of, from my experience with some of the delays that have occurred in the family court have been extraordinary, where people have actually ended up having to go bankrupt while they wait for a judge to make a decision over two years. I mean, it's just ridiculous. So I don't think that it's fair just to, to levy that at the Federal Circuit Court bench. I think there are some similarities in the family court bench as well. Um, it's just evidence that has been put before us, not in this, uh, this hearing that I've attended, but also in the merger of the two courts, is lack of experience and knowledge of some of the judges there to actually deal with the cases. And especially if it was to go to the international child cases of Magellan cases, such as I explained. Um, just in, in relation to children's rights, 
At the moment, I've been informed that children are not entitled to be heard. They are not entitled to give, to give an affidavit. Um, and in sometimes even their children's lawyers have no connection with them whatsoever and they're representing them in cases. Should a child be allowed, possibly from an age of eight and up, to be able to give um, um, their, their opinions being heard of if they prefer to live with one parent or another or um, they do have a say in their future? Senator, can I comment on that by saying, first of all, they do have the ability to have their voice heard before the court through the family report process. So the family report writers generally will run a session where they in, uh, interview the one parent with the children and they will also run a session where they have the children interviewed with the other parent. And there is an opportunity for the expert to put forward their observations in relation to the children and perhaps some of the children's desires. That's the conduit that currently exists to allow that to happen. Whether that should be expanded to include a right for children to put something forward is uh, potentially difficult because children can be influenced um, and that's one of the difficulties and perhaps one of the primary reasons why that doesn't exist at this point in time. Um, we've heard concern about child um, court reporters that are biased and basically don't write up the, the, the reports correctly and it has been raised that possibly they should be recorded so it's the back um, for reference. Do you agree with that? I think that uh, these people are experts. They have qualification. They are discharging a role and a duty to the court, which is a fundamental, important role. If they are, in fact, not completing that role honestly, then there are consequences for them with respect to the current legislation. I mean, they'd be in contempt of the court. They provide false evidence. Right. Um, I'll leave it at that. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, thank you very, thank you very much. Uh, my first question is to Mrs. Um, Devries, and just wanted to clarify: Are you, are you a you know, like a a charity? You know, come under the purview of the Charities Commission. That's correct. We are both uh, a registered law firm recognised with the Queensland Law Society, but also a registered charity recognised uh, by the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission. So we uh, overlap both of those areas. So you make um, uh, a distribution every year? Uh, there is... Um, if there is a retained surplus, uh, then that is retained in the organisation. It cannot be distributed because there's no shareholders or partners within the organisation. The reality is for the last 10 years, though, uh, we we have been running virtually uh, the income recovers the cost. And so, so just to, to be clear, clients are still charged and the lawyers That's are still paid correct. and you still pay your lawyers enough to retain them compared to other law firms... That's correct. The, the difference is, is that there's no bonuses uh, that are received in other uh, law firms, which is a, a common practice. 
And then, in addition, there's no shareholders or partners that are actually running it to make a profit. So the reality is, is that in private practice law firms, uh, the fees that are charged, about a third of those fees represent profit to shareholders and partners. So by running on a non-profit basis, it reduces the fees immediately by, by about a third. Um, that is in comparison to, say, a suburban firm uh, that is either a general practice or specialises in family law, but we are actually finding that compared to, say, a city law firm uh, that specialises in family law, we're often uh, about half the price of those of those firms. And, and so it's similar to a sole practitioner. They're not giving um, uh, money to, to partners or, you know, like they're, they're just paying the wage of the, of the solicitor, I assume. Well, practitioners are uh, commercial enterprises that are run with the intention of delivering a profit to the sole practitioner, so they are very different. And do, um, do you charge at you know, the legal aid scale, or do you do you what what scale do you use? We charge at an hourly rate. Yeah, yeah uh, when obviously. We first... Yeah, but I'm just wondering yeah. what what scale you use compared to other law firms. Uh, so the reality is, is that we're uh, generally about a third the price of a normal law firm. So I can no, no. But in terms of legal, legal aid scale, one that we can, you know, that people would be more familiar with. Yeah, I'll give you some data on that. So in 2014, the Productivity Commission report on access to justice arrangements. Um, there was some statistics in there about the estimates of solicitors' hourly rates in private market, and the commission heard during that hearing process that the rates were around $350 an hour to $600 an hour. Um, now, the hourly rate that we charge is $315 an hour, which includes GST, and that's on the basis that we are a specialist firm that practices exclusively in family law and estate law, and um, the, uh, the lawyers simply practice in those areas and are specialists in those areas. And just, just to be clear, I think you said you had 17 lawyers, or was it 17 employees? 17 team members in total. So how, how many lawyers? How many practising certificates? Yeah, 10 lawyers in total. And then seven um, others paid at award wages or above award wages, I assume? Uh, award wages, yes. And then in addition, there's the use of volunteers through our client care programs to provide care and support and encouragement to our clients. Okay. Well, and how many not-for-profit law firms are there? Uh, we were the first to use this model. Uh, afterwards, Salvo's Legal uh, started and uh, used a variation of the model uh, where essentially they had a for-profit uh, commercial entity that uh, charged normal rates and, and uh, ran at a profit and then they used those profits to fund um, a pro bono or humanitarian arm. Um, so that's a slightly different variation of the model. Uh, there are now, there is one called discrimination um, disability law in Queensland that is using uh, a similar model that provides legal services to disabled families. Uh, aside from that, I'm not aware of any others. There are, uh, there is an emerging use of the model overseas. Um, there's different models in the US and um, there's some uh, discussion around the use yeah. of the model in Canada. But it is very much an emerging model uh, and, and there's still a lot to play out as to the impact that it has, but it is certainly showing fruit as being a viable third alternative service provided to the tradi to traditional service provision models. And I, I just wanted to clarify, you, you, you say you're governed by the charity... Commission, is it what it's called? Yeah, the, That's correct. 
not for profits, not for profits, and charities commission. But you don't make a distribution. You after you pay your wages, that money stays in house. I just want to clarify that. It's like any non profit, any non profit, or, or any law firm, really. No, that, that's very different. Law firms that are run as partnerships or sole traders or as companies are run with a commercial intention to make money that not only covers the operating costs but also distributes a profit to the, the investors and the financial stakeholders. So the difference in this model is, is that there are no financial stakeholders in this model. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. My next question is to Ms. Ms. Harris. Uh, your, your submission goes into detail about various mental health conditions that impact on parenting ability and you refer to the single expert um, as the family, the family report writer, I think, is that right? The, yeah, so um, in your opinion, in cases with complex mental health issues or drug and alcohol abuse and family violence, would more than one expert giving a joint report provide better evidence for the decision maker? And I know you've already touched on this in answering Senator Hanson's question. Potentially, depending upon the facts, depending upon the facts of a case, and that's the complexity of family law is that each case is very different and unique. I think there should be further monitoring to ensure that the expert that is involved with the particular family has requisite training and experience or demonstrable training and experience of five years that they can put on a resume okay. to indicate they have requisite knowledge and training in those issues. Ms Parsons, would you like to comment on this, that same question, the idea of a, a group rather than one, one expert? So. Um, Mr Perrett, I, I agree with what Ms Harris has said. Um, I think the only thing we need to be careful of is the case of competing experts. It's something that the family court is nervous about, having too many experts. Um, but I think, as Ms Harris has said, as long as the experts are appropriately qualified, appropriately monitored and have the requisite experience, then I don't see any issue with, say, for example, um, different experts working with the main family report writer to build into their report areas of special expertise such as an awareness of um, autism and an awareness of personality disorder type issues. Okay. And I'll, I won't make any other comment on... Narcissists. Um, I, I, I am aware of professions where there's uh, many of them chair, um, uh, but I couldn't possibly comment. So. Uh, but uh, I do have a question for you, uh, Mr. Ray, uh, in terms of shared care. Your submission suggests that legislation should provide that shared care should be the arrangement for every family subject to psychological assessments and family reports. Why do you consider that the need for a presumption rather than decisions that are made in the best interests of a child? Can you just go through that question again for me, please? I just want to understand what you're getting at. Okay. Your, your uh, submission suggests that legislation provi provide that shared care should be the arrangement for every family subject to psychological assessments and family reports. Okay? So why do you consider that a need for a presumption rather than actually just making a decision based on the best interests of the child in front of the, the bench, so to speak. Okay. I, I guess that I can answer that by saying, if the... So we go back to the United Nations Convention in relation to the rights of children, and 
the fact that a child has a fundamental right to have the involvement of both of their parents in their upbringing. And that's been um, incorporated in the Family Law Act. What seems to be missing is that there does not seem to be an understanding by parents that both parents have a responsibility with respect to the raising of their children. And, and that responsibility is a shared responsibility. Now, if there is an understanding that uh, society is prepared to accept that that is the case, then unless there is particular circumstances and parents are capable of deciding these things and should be um, empowered to make these decisions and not allow it to be defaulted to a judge who has to make a decision based upon um, not even meeting the children on some affidavit evidence in a very busy jurisdiction who will turn their mind to the issue and make a decision and move on. Parents need to be empowered to make the decisions themselves and it's really a situation where the court is the last resort for making those sort of determinations. And I find that there's so much wasted effort and energy and expense around these sorts of issues where if the parents could start off by uh, accepting that both parents have responsibilities and should be involved in the children's upbringing and encouraged to resolve it, then that's the way forward. If there are particular concerns, and some of them have been discussed this morning, in relation to health conditions of individuals and psychological problems that individuals may have, and of course that's, that's a large area of the jurisdiction, then those things parties unable to resolve it should be brought before a court for a court to determine it. The, the, the other part of that UN treaty that we're a signatory to says that a child has a right to be free from violence. Yes. So you, you're not suggesting that would trump, that the first right would trump the other one, would you? No. I mean, it's got to be... I mean, that's, that's part of the problem. With um, and that we're all grappling with is um, what is in the child's best interest and placing them in a situation where they're at risk of um, domestic violence really isn't in the child's best interest. Okay, all right, and getting that balance right is obviously why we're why we're here. Okay. If it would help, I think it's it's worth looking again at the two clauses in the Family Law Act which deal with this presumption. 61DA is a presumption equal shared parental responsibility when making parenting orders. We're aware of that. But the court determines the child's best interests by looking at Section 60CC. And what that says is the primary considerations are the benefit of having a meaningful relationship. So there's your presumption. But it's rebuttable if there's a need to protect the child from physical or psychological harm, from being subjected or exposed to abuse, neglect or family violence. So the provision already lets the presumption be rebutted if there's evidence of family violence. The difficulty, of course, determining who's, who's the perpetrator and who's the victim of family violence. 
the, the, the Act is very clear that if there is any inconsistency between the two primary considerations, the right of the child to be protected from harm is to be given greater weight over the right of the child to have a meaningful relationship with each parent. Not something understood by parent, you know, those 95% of parents that are sitting around the kitchen table trying to work out how they go forward after love has, love has ended. Yeah. And you know, I actually believe that the, 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 the better position is to enshrine that presumption because women and men both equally good at being parents and they deserve to have an equal time with their children and that's what the family court suggests should happen. Um, what, what the, 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 the research that came out in October from the Australian Institute of Family Studies reveals is that children are most often spending more of their time with their mother. And I actually believe that that's not fair to mothers or fathers or children because fathers can be great parents and they want to have equal time with their children. And if there's no issue of family violence, they should be entitled to do that. And mothers should be entitled to, to not have to bear the burden of raising the children, which we love our children, obviously, but there's a burden associated with that. And there's rising levels of evidence that suggest that older women are financially disadvantaged because when they are the primary carers who have primary responsibility for the children, it actually makes it harder for them to be in paid employment. So I think, I think if, we, if we just let go of that presumption, we're actually losing the benefit of the presumption, which is that mothers and fathers should both get to be mothers and fathers, even if they're not together. And um, there should be that shared responsibility should only be rebutted if there's family violence. Thank you. Part of the confusion here seems to be in different understandings of the wording that shared responsibility is equated by many people as equal time, mm -hmm. um, which is not strictly what the law provides. Correct. And that's where I think we've got into a lot of difficulty. So a sort of shorthand version of what that means has become uh, part of popular culture almost, at least in this area of the law, and that's where part of the difficulty arises, it seems to be, is my observation at least, without making judgments one way or the other. Senator O'Sullivan. Senator Waters. I had a question on that last statement that was just made. Uh, yes, go ahead, uh, Ms Steele. Sorry, Ms Steele. Um, you referred there that um, men and, and women should be, you know, when there's no cases of domestic violence, should have an equal opportunity or equal ability to parent. That, I would suggest, though, that, um, I'm concerned that you're conflating there an ability or a right of parents, men and women, as opposed to the right of the child. Isn't, is, what evidence is there that, in fact, for children, just because their parents are separated, it doesn't mean they want their lives to be changed to having to live across different households. So there is a competing priority of also minimising change to the child's life and arrangements. Ms Stegall, um, thank you. What weight do you put on that compared to your previous comment of that really, bar any domestic violence, it should be equal between men and women? So um, I don't have any evidence about that. Anecdotally, I can say that I think... Sorry? Um, that, that anecdotally, um, it, when you have children, you make a promise to the children to, to raise them safely and to keep them in a, a stable environment. What 
the arrangement I see working best is when the parents stay in the region of the school of the children and then they share equal time with those children. If both houses, they split houses, obviously there's a clean break principle in the family court. They split those houses and then split equal time. Um, what that gives the children is a sense of certainty and a sense of understanding and uh, of, of basically what their arrangements are going to be and it gives them a routine. It's not the traditional mum and dad live in the house routine, but it's a routine that I think children can benefit from. To be honest, I, I'd rather not give evidence about that. I'm not an expert on, on, on children. Um, so I, I pr probably defer to other witnesses on that. It's correct. It, well, what evidence or what experience have you had of, in fact, children, um, whilst there is a good, maybe in principle, idea behind that kind of equal split, that children, by their own nature, like to feel settled in one place and that it's, in fact, imposing on the children the whole concept of... Uh, shared and equal time imposes on the children a splitting up of their life that they may not, that may in fact not be best for them. Yeah, but what might not be best for them is for the, for the parents to remain together, Senator, and that's just not practical. The other thing is this, that what, what I, I think we're trying to encourage here is for the parents to be proactive in making the decision as to what is in the best interest of their children as opposed to um, governments or courts or institutions or experts deciding that. And so every circumstance is different as is every relationship. And so therefore if for example there is a situation where there is a working mother and a stay-at-home dad, it could be conceivable that those parents decide that what is in the best interest of their children is that the children will reside with their dad and spend time with their mother on weekends or nights or wherever it may be and half the holidays, for example, or vice versa. So I guess the fundamental point is that um, what we want to achieve is the responsibility of determining what is in the best interest of the children is the responsibility of the parents and they should not be passing that off to courts to determine lightly. And there needs to be a mechanism whereby the parents are encouraged to discharge their responsibility first before they go running off to the court. Senator Waters, do you have any questions? No, not for these bunch of witnesses. Thank you, Senator Thank you. Sullivan. No. Uh, I think we've run out of time in any event, so can I uh, thank uh, each of you for uh, your submissions and also coming along and sharing them with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank, you. Thank, you. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. We will now last witness of the public hearing today, which is the Domestic Violence Action Centre from Queensland, once we get them online. Thank you.